Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When I was in New York, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation of this issue. I was laying there, practically, I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of Welcome to Conspiracy Normal, guys. It's your host, Adam Sane, and the wonderful producer, Mr. Robbie Lenz. Hello, hello. I do love that intro song. Oh, it gets That's me like hyped. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tonight we have coming on the show, Dr. Michael Heiser, returning for the second time. But first, we actually have a guest co host tonight, and that is the one and only Mr. Scotty Roberts. How you doing tonight, Scotty? Hey, I'm all right. Did you know there's another Scotty Roberts out there that does radio that is a white supremacist, (laughs) weird stuff, uh, and uh, somebody sent me a link to him once. They said, go look up your name on uh, Google, and I found all kinds of stuff by him, but 
That's not me. <laughs> well, I'm glad we cleared that <laughs> up. Yeah, we, we, we don't have the white supremacist Scotty Roberts on That's the line. Right. We just got the, the wonderful, cool Scotty Roberts. Could you hear the intro song as we came I in? Could not. I ah, could not. Ah, okay. Well, basically, it was like, it's something that Luke, our, our co-host, made. Where it's basically some of like our different guests. Uh, you're, you're unfortunately not in it, Scotty, but we might make another song with, with some of your some of your lines. But uh, we've got like Doc Marquis in there, and uh, John Zaffis, Elliot Marzuli, who you know, and uh, Doctor Michael Carter, who you've had on your show before on Intrepid Radio, and. Uh, so we've just got them speaking from like different clips from the show. So that's what that is in case anybody was wondering, but uh, how are you tonight, sir? I am doing all right. I, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny at the end of the day, you kind of clear your head. And I like to say, I have always been a night owl my whole life. And uh, even now a guy that's got six kids, well, only four of them living at home. Only uh, four. <laughs> only four. Ranging from 14 down to nine months. <laughs> and uh, that my only quiet time is like from nine in the evening till one in the morning, two in the morning. But then my only quiet time at the other end of the day is like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And I don't know if it's because I'm just getting older or my body clock is set. I, I go to bed late and I wake up early. But so so usually I'm in no man's land right now that, uh, you know, 7 to 9 p.m. type of thing when you're getting the kids all in bed. And well, other than that, uh, I think that was my very long answer to your very short question. So how are you? <laughs> well, uh, good. We are we are excellent. We are good. Uh, we're just, you know, doing the show and, and uh, enjoying life. Uh, kind of bummed out that we're not going to be able to see you in about a week. But uh, you do I have it. To- you do have an announcement about that. I do. For those who have not heard, and that is one of my greatest fears in all of this, is that there are some people who have missed all the emails, have missed all the public social postings. But that is the Paradigm Symposium. Our fourth annual Paradigm Symposium has been moved out a few months. We've had to postpone this date and opt for a new date in the spring, which we hope to, by the end of the week, uh, making a major announcement on the new dates. Okay. And uh, we've only had about two people that were really angry with me and uh, about another 98 that were that were very supportive. And so that ratio kind of worked out all right. Uh, I kind of thought it was going to be flip-flop the other way around. You know, you get the two people going, hey, go, you guys. And 98 people, sent, you know, port, uh, porches, uh, pitchforks and, uh, and, and, and blazing <laughs> torches. And uh, so... And it's funny. It is funny to me. I'll be honest with you. It's funny to me that you can do this thing three years in a row very successfully. And then uh, the year where you, where some problems have risen up uh, and you try to voice them and be as honest as you can about them, you still get criticized. So, uh, yeah, I'm dealing with some of that. It's. I will tell you this, though. My stress levels have decreased exponentially since we had to make the announcement about 10 days ago. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's definitely um, good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, it was like, it was like heaving a sigh of relief that, okay, we've made the decision. Now it's done. Now we got to move forward. And, uh, I will tell you, it was like, it was almost like, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, October 1st through the 4th, the Paradigm Symposium here in Minneapolis. And uh, we have a, a cadre of amazing speakers. You can still go to paradigmsymposium.com and see all the speakers we've had. Um, we ran into some difficulties, and it just seemed like there were early signs that things weren't working perfectly, but we've been there before. 
And uh, every year seems to be a struggle in, you know, September, August, uh, uh, leading up to the October Symposium. There's always something that wants to present as a wrench in our gears, and we keep working through that. I've always seen those as major challenges to overcome. And, uh, you know, onward and forward, lads, damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead, you know, is kind of my attitude about things. And uh, um, this year was like the perfect storm, as I mentioned. So all these little elements started shaping up, and early on they didn't seem insurmountable, and it wasn't really until mid to late September that it started becoming really obvious that something wasn't working as well as it should. And it was only uh, about two weeks, it was two weeks ago today, Wednesday, no, two weeks ago tomorrow, Thursday, that we had uh, some major wrenches hit the gears, and we added that with the fact that, and you folks, uh, for those of you who don't know, and if I'm talking too much about this, guys, you let me know, but uh, the private conversations I have with people really fall along these same lines. Is yeah, I actually point. spoke to you that same day. That's, that's right. A couple weeks ago, yep. Um, we're not dead in the water by any means. Uh, it's just we had to move the event because... All the elements at play seem to be orchestrating a, a, a no-go. And uh, we had, uh, let's put it this way, we had in promises from our sponsorships, which is how we run this event. We don't have deep pockets. You know, we're not rich guys. We're researchers and writers and, you know, we work for a living and we try to make things happen. And, and we, we write about the things that excite us and uh, um, that we're interested in, uh, the magazine and all of that. But... When it comes down to money for these types of things, we have to look for sponsorships that, to help foot the bill and uh, advertising and, of course, ticket sales. And those three things seem to orchestrate to, to be a no-go along with some other difficulties. And out of the uh, – let's put it this way. Out of the promised uh, – and I'm not bad-mouthing anybody when I say this, so I'm not going to mention any names. But out of the promised support that we had for the Paradigm Symposium 2015 – by all of our sponsors. And there were some of the sponsors who, after last year's paradigm, said, this is the best one you've ever done. We cannot wait to be part of next year. And uh, they all made some, some verbals to me. And, and uh, that's what we've always operated on. And then when it came time for those to come in, uh, out of a, a promised about $30,000 in sponsorships, we ended up with about $3,300 and some odd cents. And uh, I said, that, that's not going to do. And uh, ticket sales were a little lower than normal uh, for that time of the year, September. It's usually you double your ticket sales in the last month, but it just seemed to be sparser this year. And uh, there's probably a lot of factors that play into that. Most of our sponsors, all of our sponsors, who couldn't do what they said they were going to do, said, we love and support you guys. We just we couldn't get the approval to put that much in or we had to cut back because our budget has to be smaller this year. Those are the kinds of things we ran into. And on top of that, uh, we put a lot of money into the hotel uh, to reserve the hotel. And because we didn't get the sponsorships in, we ended up short on deadlines. We're supposed to have yeah. that whole thing paid in advance. And you probably would have had a lot of people just walking in and like buying yes. tickets the weekend of, too. And that's what's happened every year. Yeah. And uh, years prior to this, we've always had the hotels that will work with us on that. They, they know that a lot, a bulk of our sales come in at the end because a lot of people just, I don't know what it is, but a lot of people just goes, I'll just wait and buy my ticket the last week. You know, uh, oh my goodness, is it the last week already? I didn't buy my ticket. 
And, uh, and it's like, you know, we could sure have used that six months ago to help um, build the coffers up to make this event happen. And uh, these are the realities of the business side that I, I have always said about all of the stuff I do, the magazine, the uh, radio show, uh, the uh, Paradigm Symposium especially. I said I do these things because I love doing these things. I have a passion for them. Uh, but the moment it's not fun anymore... I said, I'll probably move on and find something different to do because I do these because I enjoy them. They're fun. They're my passion. And what happens when the business side of something that you're passionate about starts to usurp the joy in that process? I mean, I spend every year for four years, basically June, July, August, September, uh, with building stress levels, trying to make sure everything comes off right, trying to make sure all the money is in to cover our butts. And, uh, um, you know, it's not just the cost of a hotel. You know, our hotel costs us, you know, $30,000 if I round the figures up. Wow. That's this event. That's just the hotel. <clears throat> but then you have, uh, you have, it's open-ended for however many people eat, eat at the banquet. You have to have that final figure in. Uh, you have to meet a minimum for the banquet. Uh, then there is, you know, flights for all your speakers, hotels for all, rooms for all, and the rooms for our, our our people are separate from the renting of the halls, and uh, and so you you look at all the business side of this, and it, and it gets, I hate I hate that side of this thing. I, I right. wish I could turn that over to somebody to make that run for us. Got to win the lottery or something. That's right. Funny. That's right. And uh, uh, for I know we've had some criticism out there. People have said uh, somebody not a not an hour after I made the public posting a week ago Monday. Uh, somebody was in our public posting on Facebook calling us con men and and uh, um, liars and, and you just name it. And um, I had said in the letter that I put out to everybody, I gave all the business details that I could without you know just flipping open my books and say, hey everybody, examine my personal business. Uh, I just said, here's what happened. You know, we, we were short, we fell short here, we fell short here, and this is the best decision to make. And we'll, uh, uh, we hope you can all join us. And I mentioned at the end, I said, please consider something. I said, sometimes, and I, and I talked to John Ward about this and Micah Hanks and some of the other people that are very closely involved in what we're doing. John's my partner in this. And I said, you know, there's a point, and I've said this before on different occasions. I said, there's a point where you, when you say you believe something, that you you find yourself in a personal test on whether or not you really believe that because will you then expound on the fact that you believe that um it, it would be like in this case i said you know it just seems that there was a, an undeniable message telling us you got to cancel this this year oh, it's not even a cancellation it's a postponement so you got to shut it down now and reopen it later and uh um, I put that out there. I said, consider this. Perhaps the universe has given us a message. And we say we believe these things, so uh, I just wanted to express that. Well, I was taken to task by somebody for that. You know, they say, well, oh, you say the universe calls. Why don't you go for the gold and just say Satan did it? And uh, <laughs> Maybe you did. I'm like, well, okay. Uh, thanks for your input. And uh, so there, all of this presents this big stew that was cooking that said stew's got to be taken off the heat um uh and and mine i just had somebody call me tonight and talk to me for an hour and a half who happens to be uh, somebody that uh, is is going to invest in our company 
and has a lot of faith in our company. And uh, uh, this person said, uh, there's a lot to these universal messages that people don't want to admit to. And uh, she says, whether you publicize that or keep it private, there's, there's something to those things. So uh, we had to deal with some of that. And trust me, I'm the first guy who sat here for about 10 minutes with my face in my hands going, that's it. I'm sunk. There goes our reputation. There goes our credibility. There goes everything we have striven to create um, uh, from a passionate level. And uh, it was uh, it was John Ward I was talking to, and he says, brother, he says, <laughs> don't look at it that way. He says, it's onward and forward. And I said, you know, you're right. I either sit here and wallow in the fact that it didn't happen the way I wanted to, um, and there's the very real element out there of some people have lost money on this. They put in airfare, and they're never going to get it back. Um, some people bought tickets, and, uh, well, everybody who has a ticket, it's going to be honored. That's not the that's not the point there. But right. I was very concerned about people traveling and airfare and all of that, and I thought, man, mm-hmm. I'm going to be responsible for people losing money. And, uh, um, you know, you can't just say, hey, over the last four years, I've lost in this whole endeavor out of my own pocket. You know, I was 42000 in debt in 2012. I was 17000 in debt in 2013. I was 7000 in debt last year. So it got better every year. But uh, this year, um, we fully anticipated this was going to be the best ever and everything was going to come together. Um and there's criticism out there. People think we're bloody rich off of these things. We, we we don't make a dime off of these things. Not yet. Of course, this is what we put all our time and effort into. We'd love to make a living at it. That'd be awfully nice. Um, I think that was a quote. For, I think I was just channeling my wife there. Yeah, it's so it, it's it's hard, you know. It's hard it to, to put on something like this, and a lot of people don't realize just how much the the amount of money involved and, and the amount of time, and just like I mean, just the hotel alone. So you know, there's there's days you wish you could be like you know the old little rascals in our gang films from yeah. the 50s and forties. I know. Let's put on a show. <laughs> so is it looking? Yeah, is it that easy? Right. Is it looking promising here? That uh, comes looks very good. It looks very good. Are we looking just, at May, June? May and June are the months that we're targeting. Um, we're just waiting for a final word from a venue on this, and I don't want to announce the venue yet until we have it secured. Right. And there's going to be some people who can't come. There's going to be some people. I think most people you – know, we even had somebody locally to the Twin Cities here who uh, bought a ticket and said, you know, oh, we're very disappointed, but – let us take you out for dinner and drink. They took they took me out on Saturday night for dinner and drinks. Just yeah, to that's say, awesome. Just to show you we support you. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and so um, you know we're doing our best to to recover the loss of this year. Um, uh, and I will tell you something: uh, the hotel business. I wish I could make money like the hotel business. Yeah, really. Tell um, me about it. We had a huge, like I said, a thirty thousand dollar contract just under that, and um, we put in a huge chunk of our ticket dollars that have come in and things like that. This is revealing a little bit about our inner workings, but this is how we pay for these things. And uh, once we did not have the sponsorships come in to make to, to, to fill the gaps as we had planned in the budget, we were budgetless. And uh, uh, we ended up, for all the monies that we put into the hotel, 
They said, oh, you're in breach of contract because you could not make the final payment date. We'll give you till noon tomorrow as, as an extension. And this was last Wednesday or two weeks ago, Wednesday. Yeah. And I just said, I guarantee you, I said, I, I'm going to do some uh, fast tap dancing, but I don't think it's all going to be in by tomorrow. And sure enough, you know, it wasn't. And so they shut us down and called us in breach of contract because uh, we couldn't meet the deadline, which was the trickle down of not having the sponsorship dollars in that were promised. And, uh, and it all created this, this little swirling vortex that uh, by Thursday in the evening, uh, we got the word from the hotel that it's canceled. Oh, and we're keeping all the money that you put in as a down payment because you would be in because you're in breach of contract and the contract says you're liable for eighty percent of this if you cancel. Even though That's they didn't have to cancel. do even though they didn't have to do anything. No, there's nothing didn't. that they did, you know, they didn't make any uh, like like what did they do? They clean the ballroom or something? I mean, yeah, come well, on. Yet, they wouldn't have done that till the day before. <laughs> and that's, right. I, I do understand the business side of it. They take reservations in advance. And if we didn't show up or if we defaulted, what are they going to do with those rooms when they may have been able to rent them to somebody else? I understand yeah. the business side of that. And so, but these are the entanglements that people don't hear. They just think, Ah, uh, somebody screwed screwed with us, or somebody's lying to us, or somebody stole from us, or that's very few. But you get those criticisms out there, and uh, so basically, what happened is it came it came down to it, and with all the planning we've done, it hasn't been like any other year. Uh, I mean, I mean, like every other year, where it's always worked, it's always happened. We've always done this the same way, and we grow with it, and uh, getting less debt every year, which is nice. And uh, I got to tell you, when you walk out of an event and say, I only owe $7,000, and it's only for the speaker's fees, which is coming out of the money we collected at the show, so we basically got enough to go to dinner and celebrate that we didn't go into debt. Um, you know, that's what these things end up like, and we still do it the next year. Enough money for dinner. There you go. And, yeah. And, and so uh, all of this uh, to say is that, yeah, we had to postpone the event. And we postponed it for good reason, is that um, we, we, we want to keep this alive. We know we can. We just, for whatever reasons, everything worked against it this year, and it didn't really all come to roost until really the last few weeks. And we had an increasing awareness that this is not going good. Do we have to call this? No, this is going to come in. We have so-and-so's word on this, and then it doesn't happen. And in that last yeah. week, you're, you're left... Well, there it is. I wonder, I wonder if it was because everybody thought the world was going to end like on September and like well, specifically like on today. Like today was supposed to be the yeah, end of the world, today. by the way. Well, hey, today's not over. Be <laughs> That's true. There's still time. Uh, yeah, I know. We still got still a few time. more hours. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. I think there was a combination of, of economic factors uh, out there. Uh, people weren't buying tickets. Perhaps we didn't have that Giorgio Sukulis name on the roster. And so people, eh, I don't want to go. go fly over there to hear. Uh, I'm not saying it was Giorgio Sukulis, but it was yeah. Giorgio Sukulis. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Scotty, uh, that, once you know that, uh, once you know when the date is going to be, let us know. We'll announce it on here. And, you know, as it gets closer to the time, we'll have you back on to talk about it. Probably but I, within a week. Uh, we'll we'll know we'll be able to make some good announcements. Excellent, on this. excellent. I did want to get your thoughts on something, and uh, I'm going to read something because yesterday, as a lot of people in the paranormal community may know, 
there was a it was some of the people in our our listenership may not actually know about this there was actually a, a, a tragedy and i've got a short this is actually this story is actually made usa today now by the way uh i'm gonna i want to read this real quick uh it's pretty short let's see it's um reno ghost adventures couple found dead the constantinos were found inside their daughter's apartment near sparks high school SWAT teams from both Reno and Sparks Police surrounded the courtside gardens apartments, evacuated the complex, and put it on lockdown. Police abandoned their investigation shortly after 6.30 a.m. when a woman arrived at a home at Escalera Court to find her male roommate dead inside. Reno Police Lieutenant William Rula said his name had not been released. Police then learned that another roommate, Debbie Constantino, was missing. Officers tracked her cell phone and found her inside the apartment in Sparks with her estranged husband. When arriving at the apartment, officers knocked on the door and heard several shots fired, said Reno Police Deputy Chief Tom Robinson. The suspect told police, give me 15 minutes to gather my thoughts or I'll kill her, Robinson said. Officers said they heard a man yelling at police to leave. Officers began negotiating with the man, but eventually used explosives to blow the door open and found the couple dead inside. Police did not say how they were killed or what kind of gun was used. According to KRNV-TV, police said the couple had a long history of domestic violence and Mark Constantino had allegedly kidnapped Debbie Constantino a few months ago. Records indicate he was arrested in August and booked on suspicion of domestic battery by strangulation, first-degree kidnapping, and first-degree domestic battery. The Constantinos are involved in several television programs about ghost hunting, including Ghost Adventures, police said. And, Scotty, I did not know the Constantinos. I knew who they were. I'd heard of them, possibly had seen them on TV or on on TV, on the shows. But you did actually know uh, these people. Um, I, I did. And I, I would say they were friends of mine. We, you know, we weren't like best friends and we were all going to go get a cottage together or anything. We, we, right. but we were friends. I met them, uh, through the darkness radio, Dave Schrader's, uh, darkness radio events, uh, back in 2007, I want to say is when I first met them Yeah, and, uh, um, did several events together with them. Uh, talked to Mark and Debbie both a little bit over the years. Now and then it was kind of Facebook, you know, Hey, how you guys doing? Haven't talked to you for a long time. And, uh, Debbie, uh, you know, she liked some of the books I did and she would promote them and she would call me and, and want to talk about this. And, and that's, that, that was about the extent of our, it was, it was very, uh, it was our, we're friends, but we, we don't see each other that much anymore. And, um, um, with Mark, I, I have to say something very honestly. With all the the uh, the nastiness that's thrown out about him, which is justifiable, I want to say when something like this happens, what do you do with the emotion that says this is somebody I cared about and somebody I, I can say I loved as a friend, and he's done something heinous? Yeah. Does the instant hate button toggle get get flipped? No, uh, the the hatred killed killed he, two people. I know one it, of which was his wife. His wife, and do you hate the man? No, you hate what he did, and and you hate what he became. I said to somebody yesterday. I said, in my farthest reaches, I knew they had problems. They were always kind of a you know anybody who knows them knows they bickered a lot in public, and but couples do that. Right. There are some couples I know that do that that 
are madly in love with each other and they're fine. Right, but when but, does but it cross the line into domestic violence and abuse cro- and it, murder, you know? When it crosses that line, then all of a sudden somebody that you once cared about has to become somebody that you hold in utter derision. And uh, I do not for a moment excuse anything he did, and I do not for any moment yeah. um, uh, want to even – it's hard to even want to forgive him. Uh, I'm not the one that needs to forgive him, but, it, you know, in, from a distance. Um, he's somebody I cared about that did something heinous, and, and, and my brain is still trying to process that. Yeah. I can turn on the instant social network, oh, I hate that guy, may he burn in hell. Um, the problem is, yeah, I probably feel that deep down, um, uh, but processing what he did, the heinous acts he committed, the abuse he committed over the months, um, I think it was just in August, he was arrested for strangling her. It didn't kill her, but, and you look at that and you go, Mark, what the hell are you doing? What that article didn't say, uh, and other articles had is that his daughter helped him do that. Yes. And she got arrested as well for kidnapping. Yeah. They both they both got out on like really cheap bail. And they said in this article that most of the time with kid bail for kidnapping, it's set mm-hmm. very, very high. But for some odd reason, this was set extremely low. He was re- he was able to bond out. They both were able to bond out. And then there was a restraining order that was put against him. But, of course, you know, that doesn't always work. Restraining orders are as as rigorous at being able to protect you as the paper it's written on. Um, I've known many people with restraining orders. uh, My mother, my own mother, was shot in the chest by her estranged husband back in 1999. But she had a restraining order against him from getting into her house and shooting her. It's not effective. It's not. And so all that to say, I, I'm, I'm just expressing emotions as they come because you deal with somebody that was a friend or somebody you cared about and and they do something like that. Instant derision, instant, instant uh, uh, hatred, but you're still processing it. Yeah. Um, and so uh, with Debbie, uh, just, what a loss and what a loss for for such when when. Uh, you know, it, what, what this does for me is, uh, and you, you don't want to make a cause out of anything. You just want to say, it, it makes you recognize that there are women out there that need this kind of protection. And it ain't just, many times we hear stories of women that go, oh, my husband, I'm afraid. And, you know, everybody will come and go, oh, oh. And, and then in reality, people are going, oh, boy, they're just arguing again. Or, oh, well, whatever. She just got to leave him and whatever. And it's treated very cavalierly yeah. unless you're close to that situation. And then you see. Right. Th- this is the kind of thing that I heard several people say this yesterday. This is the kind of thing that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to you. It doesn't happen to your friends. Uh, certainly people you care about. And and uh, so I, I got to tell you, it, it, it struck me with utter shock. Um. And uh, uh, I'm I'm still, uh, you, you know, there's a uh, uh, there's the grief that is there, and you want to process that grief. And uh, I, I ended up today telling some people that I work with. I, I told them some stories about Mark and Debbie. Um, and if you don't mind, I just want to share some of those. These are some of the uh, the, the very good things that I remember about them. Um, we were at uh, 
Waverly Hills Sanatorium at a Darkness Radio event back in, God, I want to say it was 2008 or 2009. I don't know which year it was. And Mark and Debbie were smokers, and uh, I smoked. And uh, we had a hotel room where you could smoke. And I remember I went up to their room. They opened up a Debbie opens up a duffel bag, and and uh, it's filled with about fifty packs of Marlboros. And uh, she said, "Here, you need a pack of cigarettes." <laughs> I go, "Well, sure." She says, "Let's light up." And so we're sitting up there. And and now, as you guys know, she collected these old dolls, uh, antique dolls, and they would do EVP recordings with these dolls. And they had one in particular that was I don't remember all the details. His name was Patrick the doll and he was over 100 years old old i do believe and she said have you ever met patrick our doll and i said well you know it's an odd question i said well no i haven't and she said i want you to i want you to see see him and see the doll and she pulls him out of the suitcase he's all wrapped up and brings him out and here's this 100 year old doll sets him on the sofa next to me i'm sitting uh, straddling the arm of the sofa and she sets this doll down on the sofa she goes that's patrick i go cool I said, and how old? I asked a couple of questions. She said, let's try a little experiment. She said, I'm going to do a little EVP work. And she pulled out her little digital recorder. And uh, I don't know if it was digital or analog, but she pulled it out. And she said, she said, so, she said, Scotty, I want you to meet Patrick. I go, hey, Patrick. And, of course, you know, I'm sitting there talking to a doll. Uh, it's like talking to my daughter's Barbies, you know. I don't, <laughs> if you ever hear me doing that, uh, be very careful. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, so I'm talking to a doll, and that's what's going through my mind. And I'm curious, of course. And then she says, Patrick, this is Scotty. And she pauses, you know, as you do when you're recording for EVPs. And she says, how was your flight? And this and that. And she asked some questions and so on. And she talked for about two or three minutes and then said, let's listen back. And uh, she plays this back, and you hear her go, um, Scotty, this is Patrick. Patrick, this is my friend Scotty. And he goes, and you hear this voice in the EVP, oh, hi, Scotty. And it sounded like this crinkly old man sitting like on a front porch or something on his right. Oh, I've got to hear you. You know, and I'm like, I looked at her and I, I think I, I flew out the WTF expletive in full color. <laughs> and I leaned away a little bit and I looked down at that doll and I said, you have got to effing be kidding me. And she played on and how was, how was your flight? Oh, it was okay. All wrapped up. Oh. You know? Like that, and I'm, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I was floored by that. And, well, so we sat and talked about that, and we listened to a bunch of their EVPs for the rest of the evening, and it was it was kind of fun. Um, and the other one, the story was at Gettysburg, and there's a picture that a friend of mine posted on my Facebook of uh, me with Mark and Debbie. And and see, look, I'm, I'm even loathing saying Mark's name first, but I've always said it Mark and Debbie as opposed to Debbie and Mark. And yeah. I, don't even, I, yeah. I, I almost don't want to mention his name. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Egyptians believed if you that the mention of the name and the, the presence of the name gave eternal life. And uh, I saw somebody today uh, say something on a post that said, Mark, I'll miss you. Um, I hope you find the light. And, you know, that's powerful stuff when you say, and this is what I was trying to say earlier, is that when you care about somebody, um, hating them for what they did is one thing. Wishing that they would find the light is is an amazing step for anybody to be able to take. Would we wish anybody? Could you say of say Adolf Hitler, let's just go for the, the common the, the, the common example. 
somebody like an Adolf Hitler, would you wish him to burn in hell or do you think it is incumbent upon us as humans to say, I hope you find the light? It's cognitive dissonance, Scotty. That's it's, it's, exactly it's, what it it's, is. It's cognitive dissonance and shock. It's is, shock. Is what it's it is. Shock. And it, we're going to have to call Dr. Heiser here in just a bit. Sure, sure. But uh, oh, I want to... Second story. That yeah, was just okay. A... Absolutely. So. Oh, I was saying I can skip it if you need me to. Uh, I mean, real quick. Okay, real quick. Uh, I was with Adam Bly, Amy Bruni, Britt Griffith, uh, Adam Sagers, and I were all... Um, at the Farnsworth House in Gettysburg for uh, at one of the events out there. And uh, one of the people who worked there told us the story of the man, uh, um, Sweeney, who owned the house during the Civil War. And by the way, the exterior of this red brick building is all pockmarked with bullet holes from or bullet gouges from the Civil War. And five Confederate snipers had died in the attic up there. And uh, she said, she told us some ghostly stories and some things that happened that they don't tell the public, that the man who owned this place had actually um, raped his daughters, and when the child was born, he would kill them and bury them in the basement. And it was apparently his widow that revealed this stuff to the county seat after his death. And so it's been documented, but they don't talk about it at the Farnsworth house. And so they took us and they let us go in, and it ended up being Aaron Sagers and Adam Bly and, and myself in there. And, and uh, Adam was getting some feelings. If you don't know Adam Bly, uh, who he is. Uh, very, yeah, I'm uh, familiar with him. Yeah, very Catholic. Uh, praise for souls. He, he's basically, you'd say, if he wasn't using his, his Roman Catholicism and his theology to back what he does, he's just a psychic is what you'd get out of it. But uh, um, we went out in Debian and Mark were there doing an EVP demonstration for about nine or ten people down in the basement there. And so we came out of this catacomb area, which they keep locked up. And I went over and I asked Debbie, I said, hey, would you uh, ask if there's a Mr. Sweeney here? This is the guy who killed the babies. And uh, sure, she said. And, and so Adam and Aaron and I were standing in the back of the room and this circle was sitting around them. And she said, let's try a little experiment here. And she asked if there was a Mr. Sweeney in the room and... Uh, or in the house and anything. She asked a couple of other questions. And then they, they recorded for a couple of minutes, and then they did a playback. And on the playback, this was like something out of a a movie. It was it was creepy as hell. And we're standing back there, and you hear her ask on the recording. She asks as they're playing back, is Mr. Sweeney here? And you hear this growl that went something And he says, I'm Sweeney. You hear that voice come out. And I was like, oh, my God. And uh, um, and then over his voice, you hear children. Hmm. And they're saying things like, pray for us. Save us from the Father. What? These children. And then And then you hear this man's voice growling again. And then you hear him say this as clear as a bell. And you can check with Aaron. You can check with Adam. As clear as a bell, the voice from the recorder said, Adam Bly calls out his name. Don't you effing tell me what to do. Because when we were in the catacomb, he felt this dark presence, and he had said, whoever you are, you have to back off. I'm going to pray for these children later. And this is, so this is where this voice came. And Adam turns to me and he goes, huh, he doesn't sound very happy. <laughs> wow. And, <laughs> so this was uh, just a little story of some of the experiences that uh, – um, I had with the Constantinos and, and with Debbie. And uh, 
Um, I got to tell you, to, to wrap up my, my thoughts on them, it's just uh, an utter tragedy. Um, I'm very saddened by this. It's almost difficult. Uh, I to can talk imagine. About. It's it's difficult to talk about. But again, I uh, they were friends, and uh, um, I don't claim any special friendship with them or anything special about them. I just knew them. They were friends, and it's a, just a terrible thing. Right. And uh, overcoming this for everybody, it's one of those things where you say this hit too close to home. I, and, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. I just wanted to point out uh, two things about this. First of all, there's this guy out there that is already claim- is already saying that he's going to communicate with them through ITC or EVP. Um, bullshit. I, I'll just put that out there, okay? The second thing is that same daughter, the one that helped him kidnap her, yeah, uh, come out on Facebook today and says, you guys don't know us. You don't know what we went through. Uh you know, my mom deserved to die. She deserves to be in hell. Jesus. I mean, that's like almost like brainwashing going on right there, man. <sighs> that's horrible. That is absolutely horrid. So, Scotty, let's take a break here uh, for a few minutes. Uh, we're going to cut, but uh, stay, you're going to stay on the line with us through, through yes, Dr. Sir. Heiser. And, uh, guys, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Okay, guys, we're back on Conspiranormal. Uh, the world did not end today because of the Pope's visit. Uh, but we have on the line uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, and of course, still sitting in with us, Dr., uh, Mr. Scott. I almost said Dr. Scotty Roberts. So <laughs> enhance your position there, Scotty. I'm sure oh, you don't I mind. You. <laughs> but uh, Dr. Heiser has a. We had him on back in April of this year, and we talked about all the kind of good stuff. We talked about uh, Nephilim, about uh, the Divine Council, and about how the how Zachariah Sitchin was uh, was pretty much wrong. And which I believe you would agree with Scotty. And I absolutely agree with that. Man, you've just in introducing him, I've already got 10 questions I want to ask him. So I'll shut up over here until the opening comes. Absolutely. Well, I, but he has a new book out called The Unseen Realm, and uh, which is recovering the supernatural worldview of the Bible. And there's also a companion book to that, which is called Supernatural. Uh, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, Dr. Heiser. It's, it's awesome to have you back here. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've read the book uh, from cover to cover. I've, uh, As I've said while we were talking here, we're just like, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it's an interesting book. I'm not quite sure if I grasped everything in it, but uh, definitely so it might be something I would have to probably read again in chapters to kind of digest it all. But I, we've kind of covered the Divine Council stuff uh in our last show but what i wanted to kind of get at your idea is kind of like what's the importance of kind of studying the bible in its original context and, and by that meaning studying it as it, putting ourselves in the place of like a uh, the people that wrote the old testament at the time period mm-hmm. well i mean i could be sort of trite and say you ought to be concerned about that if you care about understanding, you know, the Bible, this thing that, you know, we call the Word of God. Um, but I'm actually serious about that because I, I get right. this question a lot. And uh, again, you know, I, I guess it just depends on how cranky I am at the time or whatever the <laughs> venue is. And, I mean, I, because, but I'll say stuff like that. Look, well, it's not important. 
you know, just sort of, you know, tune back into American Idol or something. You know, it, it's not important if you don't care about understanding Scripture. I mean, if if you, whether you put, you know, assign any theological, you know, or confessional commitment to it or not, uh, th- this is a this is an ancient book. You know, actually, a collection of books that is intelligently put together. Um, it, it's not random. It's haphaz- It's not haphazard. Everything is there for a purpose. And if you just want to understand what the writers were trying to communicate, well, then you'll care about context. Uh, if you, if you again assign any uh, theological significance to it, you know things like inspiration. This is the word of God, and so on and so forth. I mean, if you're going to hang you know, those things on it, then I don't even understand why you're asking the question again. Why wouldn't you want to understand what God prompted people to write and communicate to us again, using their own language from their own frame of reference, their own, you know, cognitive framework as scholars like to say, uh, to an audience that shared those things uh, again, the whole idea of the Bible was was written for us, but not to us. So if you really want to grok it, if you really want to understand it, uh, and I would think, again, if if you're assigning theological significance to it, that it, it actually matters to understand the thing, um, rather than just sort of sit there in church with it on your lap and, you know, pretend to, you know, to be this, you know, Bible lover. Right. Then, then uh, you know, the, the question is sort of absurd on that level. Uh, you know, I, obviously, I don't want to be flippant about it, but honestly, it's like any—it's like anything else. You know, if the material I write, okay, I have a particular frame of reference. I grew up in a particular time and place and a culture and things going on around me, and and I'm the product of things I've I've studied and read outside of, of scripture. So when I when I write about scripture, there's all this going on, and and for you to really understand what I'm trying to communicate in in the modes with the expressions and whatever that I'm using to do so, you're going to have to understand me and my context. Uh, Otherwise, you're guessing. So the short answer is you should care if you want to do more than guess. So if you're content with guessing, you know, and you might have good guesses and you might lean on people who've guessed before you. But if you want to move beyond that and, and sort of examine those guesses and probe them for, for strengths and weaknesses and, and really, again, try not to be dependent on the guesses of those who have gone before, well, then you're going to care about context. Can I, can I ask a question here? And this is something that I've always wanted to ask you personally. It's a question of faith versus, um, say, agnosticism. I, I read some of your work. I've read some of, say, David Roll. He's somebody I respect as a, as a researcher and a linguist, but he is a self-acclaimed agnostic. In, in deciphering biblical message uh, through linguistics, and like you said, you know, it's, it's language, it's context, it's to whom it's being written, do you think a prerequisite to that is to have a faith that that is so uh, in a certain message? Or can somebody who is agnostic, like, say, Roll, come out with an accurate message? I, I had an old seminary professor of mine, Dr. Charles Ailing, at the University of Northwestern, and um, he was in a small seminary when I knew him 35 years ago. And uh, he said to me about some of the stuff I write, he says, Scotty, remember, you've always got to filter everything you write through a biblical filter. 
And I, I said, well, Doc, isn't that then saying I'm only going to look at this one way? Uh, should I step outside of that box and consider it from other angles? So my question to you, if that rambling question makes any sense, um, is does it take a faith to understand what the scripture is saying in a certain way? Or can somebody write about that saying, I may not believe the faith or I'm agnostic, uh, but I accept that there is efficacy to what to the words that are there. What's your what's your take on all of that? Yeah, I'm not one that believes that you have to ha- you have to be a you know quote unquote believer or have to have a a faith commitment to accurately understand scripture. I I, I know Chuck, you know, and, and I I I can see you know him saying that, um, but you know I, I don't I don't think that that is really the case because. I mean, if you are, again, if, if you're a competent person in the original languages, if you really, you know, have your head in, in again, the primary context, the primary, you know, sources in other regard, um, I don't see whether you assign, again, a faith reality to XYZ text. I don't see how that inhibits your ability to understand the text, um, you know, I think that idea is is a bit artificial and contrived based upon pulling certain texts of the New Testament out about how the Spirit would guide us, you know, guide you into all truth and that sort of thing. And I really do believe that those things are taken out of context because if you actually look at when they're said, I mean, you know, Jesus, for instance, is going to be, you know, saying that or something similar to it. And what he's really talking about is, hey, you know, when when I'm gone and the spirit comes and, you know, you're going to have hindsight, the spirit's going to, you know, enable you to under, to process, you know, what in the world has just happened to us. In other words, it's very particular, uh, you know, again, toward to the setting of, you know, what Jesus is actually talking about, what the historical circumstances, it's not a guarantee that everyone who is a follower of Christ is going to come out with either a, a, a correct interpretation or, you know, really precise, correct interpretation or that they're all going to arrive at the same place, you know. It, I mean, uh, history the, and reality just show that 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 is not uh, the case by sincere, committed believers. You know, well, across the board, they disagree on many things. I, I was sitting in an adult Sunday school class about 15 years ago, and and our our layman uh, Sunday school teacher was was teaching the book of uh, Job, and he mentioned mm-hmm. a couple of times about. And uh, Job did this because of of the you know the efficacy of the blood of Christ or his his belief in Christ. And I, I, I rose my I said Bob I said I said this was pre Christianity this was pre this was pre Jewish uh, this is uh, this is way back you're talking about uh, about Job. I said how can you use that language to ascribe Job's Job's actions other than in retrospect? And I think mm-hmm. I, I I think I see I hope I'm not misunderstanding you, but it seems to me that. When you use that, even for a good thing in a church setting, you are really not um, um, doing justice to the original uh, language, to the original context of what was being said. Yeah, in, in a situation like Job, or you know, a lot, lots of things in the Old Testament, you know, within the uh, you know within the framework again of this of the thing we call the Bible, I, I don't I don't believe that you're going to find something in Job. That's going to like offer a different gospel than you're going to get in the new, t- you know, I mean, it, it the, the salvation in a biblical theological sense is actually very consistent. 
across the Testament. So you're, you're not going to be in one place and come out with system A and another place in system B. But, but to take an Old Testament passage like Job and filter it through the New Testament, uh, I, I don't think is legitimate. You know, and I, and I, I get in, I don't want to say I get in trouble for this all the time, but I mean, that I, there are lots of people who operate from what they would like to call uh, a, a Christocentric, you know, system of interpretation. And your illustration is sort of right, um, right. in line with that, you know. And it's like, well, I, you know, I, I hate to break it to you, but not everything in the Bible is about Jesus. You know, laws about wh- what to do with your poop outside the camp. <laughs> you know, laws about, you know, seminal emission, rendering you ritually impure. Yeah, I right. mean, I could just go on and on and on, you know, all sorts of things. They really don't point us to Jesus. What they do is they tell us about the people of God in a specific uh, situation, time, and history, and circumstance. They teach us about sacred space. You know, we, I mean, they're, they're understandable on their own terms is, is what it right. comes down to. And they're all, they're all you know, parts of a story. They're, they're, they're parts of a, of, you know, bigger, you know, historical slash, you know, theological uh, narrative. But that, you know, they have their own place there. And, and again, if you're going to if you're going to believe in something like inspiration, this whole Christocentric idea creates a, the false impression that if I if I can't see Jesus in this passage, this one's probably less important than the one next to it. Well, that that is actually contrary to the whole doctrinal idea of inspiration, because it, what inspiration says is if God deemed it important enough to put in here. Right. Well, then then shouldn't we like look at all of it on the same, you know, you know, as equal sure. in that sense. But if you're running around and, and, and just saying, well, you know, you, you got to see Jesus in X, Y, Z passage and, and people look at it and scratch their heads. Man, I can't, I just can't see him in there. Then somebody comes along and magically, mystically reveals it to you. It just, oh, I guess they have special knowledge and, or I guess I'm just, you know, too right. dumb or something. I, I really, I really don't like the idea for that reason. But yet on the other hand, I mean, I, I, I get it because, you know, in biblical theology, you know, Jesus is the is the focal point, the culmination, you know, the the reference point, the touch point to, to so many things. But it, it, it's a there's a false air of piety, you know, to that. And, and and frankly, I actually wrote something on our on the Logos blog, you know, that it just sort of blew up. You know, people just got real offended uh, by it uh, about this very topic. Mm. And I said, look, in my experience, this whole thing, you know, I'm I'm, I'm jumping into this Old Testament passage and it's weird and it's strange and then it's about some abstract point about Jesus. I said, that, that's just an excuse. That, that's laziness. You know, it, it, it's, it's just easy to, 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 again, make this passage, you know, talk about Jesus in some abstract kind of allegorical, and in some cases, fruit loopy way. And, and what that says is I didn't want to do the work to really figure out what it was saying. I'm just yeah. going to default, you know, to this thing I understand and nobody's going to object to me because then they're then you're picking on Jesus. It's like, look, I'm not picking on Jesus. I'm just saying, don't be lazy. Well, let me ask you, Doctor <laughs> Doctor Heiser. Do, do the work. Let, let, yeah. let me ask you about like specifically on the book. Uh, there's there's two passages that you pretty much rely on in this book, and you kind of build around these two biblical passages. That one is uh, Psalm 82. And the second one is Deuteronomy 32. And these are very essential to the kind of worldview that you're, that, that you're exploring in this book. What are those passages and, and how do they 
how do they mesh with like some of the ideas, especially the ideas about Eden and the Tower of Babel and what's going on there? Yeah. Well, Psalm 82 is sort of the, the, the textbook passage about the divine council, uh, because the first verse opens with God and the divine council, you know, and judging the Elohim uh, in, in that passage. And so, you know, that the passage points to this notion that the, the unseen realm, the unseen world has its own inhabitants, you know, plural, and they are they, they exist in hierarchy. Uh, the God of Israel, we find out from other passages, not, you know, it's implied in, the, in Psalm 82, but in other passages that, you know, he is, he's different from the others and, you know, some important ways. And in that passage, he's judging them. So there's this sense that God does what he does in the spiritual realm and he has, um, a, an entourage, you know, that, that assist him, if you want to, you know, use that, that terminology. Um, and, and the way that filters, you know, back into Eden is if we look at what Eden was, you know, this, you know, heaven come to earth, you know, kind of idea right. where God creates, you know, the, this, this place we call earth to be, uh, filled and inhabited. And he wants uh, humans there. I mean, he create, creates, you know, humanity. And the sons of God, you know, in, in the spiritual realm, we learned from Job 38, are already around. You know, they've already been created. And so God wants that family united with a human family. Heaven is going to meet earth. Uh, the humans are embodied. And so, you know, they, they live in this place. And we're going we're gonna to go down there and all live together and enjoy this wonderful, you know, place and and every, you know, my, my family, you know, it's a family business. My family's going to, you know, live with me and work with me and, and participate in, in, you know, doing the things that we need to do now to maintain this place and enjoy it. Uh, again, it's, it's, there's family ideas. There's, 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 uh, uh, an idea of heavenly beings coexisting with, with human beings, uh, under the same, you know, creator, the same father and, and authority, you know, so all these ideas, again, uh, you know, feed into this God wants a family. God wants participatory governance of, of the things that he makes. Why? Well, we're not really told why. Apparently, God just enjoys making intelligent beings like himself and letting them enjoy him and what, what he does and, what and you know, how they participate in it. And, and, you know, I've had people mm-hmm. object, well, you know, you're, God doesn't need all this. He doesn't need a council. He doesn't need advisors. And it's like, yeah, that, that's correct. He doesn't need you either. He doesn't you know, right, need right. the great commission. You know, he doesn't need us to do anything, but exactly. apparently yeah. God likes to create intelligent beings and have them participate with him and enjoy the, the participation itself and the benefits of it. It's just part of God's nature. So we don't know why you know, that is, but that's what it is. Right. 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 We, we don't know exactly why, but that, that's the picture that clearly emerges. And so Psalm 82, you know, you get, you get a glimpse in it into it's a negative you know picture because God is judging, you know, some of those who. Uh, you know, were were negligent uh, in their task, and frankly hostile in that context because they they're being the, the gods of the nations are being judged for uh, being unjust, not ruling. You know, the, the people assigned to them in Deuteronomy thirty two eight nine uh, justly according to the laws of of the true God, and so they're going to get they're going to get judged, they're going to get punished, and you know so on and so forth. So those that. Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, Psalm 82 are just part of this, again, sort of all-encompassing, you know, worldview that begins in Eden, you know, little kernels of it in Eden. You get to see what God desires and wants, and then everything, again, 
quote unquote goes to hell in a handbasket, you know, because he has to make these beings like him. And part of being like God, part of, you know, the theological term is part of, you know, sharing God's communicable attributes. You know, one of those attributes is freedom. You know, we don't possess it to the same extent God does, and we certainly don't have his nature. But nevertheless, to be like him in in any coherent sense, we can't be robots. Right. We, we have to, to have free to will. make decisions. Right. And right. so that that's just part and parcel. I mean, God's not surprised that that we screw up because that that's just part of the potential because they're not me. You know, they're, they're, they don't know my nature. They're not me. And nevertheless, I, I'm, I'm fine with taking this risk, you know, so to speak, because I'm, I'm big enough to, uh, you know, work, work my will, work my plan with that in place. And their decisions, you know, are important because they'll genuinely, again, get to participate and enjoy, you know, what's here as opposed to everything being predetermined. So all of these things, what I do in Unseen Realm is th these are all threads that run through Scripture. And I mean, you've read the book. There's, yes. I probably track on 12 or 15 of these things that just run through the, the narrative and they, they cluster in places and they build, you know, in, in places and they go off, you know, different trajectories and then they converge at some other point. But one of the goals of the book is just to, to get people to appreciate the, the connectedness of ideas uh, within, again, this thing we, we, we call the Bible, so that they don't just read things in isolation and tear things out of context and, and realize that I'm reading this thing over here in the New Testament, which for most Christians is all they ever get to hear, but appreciating right. the fact that, hey, this idea has a history. And I, and I don't. I won't really understand it here in this passage unless I understand, you know, where it came from, and, and just to start looking at scripture that way. I, I want to ask you, Doctor Heiser, about the Tower of Babel story, and I, I don't want to return to Eden and to the the some of the concepts there, especially with the Nephilim, because uh, our good friend here, Mister Scotty Roberts, has written a whole book about the Nephilim, but. Uh, I wanted to get your ideas about the Tower of Babel because the way that you describe it is in terms that I have never thought about the story of the Tower of Babel, if I have thought about it at all, that I've ever, in a way that God, the idea of, of separating out the nations, separating out the languages, mm -hmm. but in a certain sense that he's actually giving up the author his authority and giving it to lesser deity, so to speak. Yeah, that I mean, most people are familiar with the story because they read Genesis 11. But you know, really, to this day, I've met very few people who, if I if if I ask them, hey, you know, give me give me two passages you know, that talk about the Tower of Babel or that have something to do with that story. I mean, they can find the one in Genesis, but <laughs> I haven't found anybody that, oh, it's Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, of course, you know. I mean, people don't don't ever s seem to see that. And again, those aren't the only two passages either. But Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9 is really crucial because, you know, it says, you know, when the Most High divides, divided the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. And it, that it, it that is verse eight, then verse nine, right on the on the back of, end of it is, but Israel is Yahweh's portion, 
you know, Jacob is his inheritance. And then right after the, the Babel event, we have God calling Abraham and beginning the nation of Israel. So the, right. the picture, you know, is again that here we are after the flood. You know, God has reiterated the, the you know, the, the covenant mandate, you know, to, that he gave to Adam and Eve. Here we are on the other side of the floods, disperse, you know, be fruitful and multiply. You know, we're, we're back to this. Well, let's let's start over again and, and, and have, you know, sort of kickstart, you know, the, the kingdom of God idea. Make, you know, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And this is the first thing I want you to do. We're going to go, you know kickstart this whole idea again and of course you know some of them do some of them don't but we, we get the the story in, in, in genesis 11 about how they congregate and they, they build a ziggurat well why would why well, what, what's the point again I'm, I'm sure you know scotty could tell you that the ziggurats were part of temple complexes you built them right. to localize the deity you know it so so rather than rather than going out you know, and spreading, you know, the, the, the knowledge of God. No, no, we're going to stay right here and, and, and we're going to sort of make God, to, you know, at our beck and call here. And, and the, whole, the whole response to it is a judgment. And so, yeah, we remember, again, in Sunday school, you know, the nations get divided and everybody gets scattered. The languages get confused. Right. But you're never told why. You're only, you only get the why in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. And so it, it's a judgment. God disinherits them. He, he says, fine, you don't want me to, to, to be your God. You want to you know, start pulling all this stuff and do things the way you want to do. You know, I'm not going to have the same kind of relationship with you. I'm going to cut off the relationship here. He doesn't cut it off totally or permanently. Because when he calls Abraham, he includes the nations in the Abrahamic covenant. So it's not a permanent, you know, divorce. But it is, you know, a, a divorce. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to put you under the administration of these other sons of God. And we learn from Acts, you know, the book of Acts, that part of the logic of this was that they would, the other nations, you know, according to Acts 17, would find their way back to the true God. And we get this idea of Israel being a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They mediate, you know, the knowledge of God to other, you know, to others, you know. So we get these little little snippets of, of the logic here that this is a punishment. It's not permanent. We're, we're going to, you know, get, put you under these, the authority of these other, these other gods. And they're going to be sort of like holding places, you know, placeholders. And they're supposed to rule you justly according to, you know, what, how, what God thinks is just, which would be, you know, his, his principles, you know, his, his law comes later, you know, it gets codified, but somehow they're supposed to learn about the true God through that and, and be drawn back to him. And eventually we'll get all back together and be one big happy family. And again, and again it just doesn't work that way. But this, it's the whole logic of ultimately when things fall apart, this is why, again, to the biblical reader, oh, I understand now why the nations have these other gods. I understand now why, you know, they're not, you know, worshiping Yahweh. It's because of this decision, and this was a punishment. And, and they seduced Israel, you know, to worshiping them, themselves. And that was just bad news back in the days of Moses. And, you know, you, you get this whole story, and it frames pretty much the rest of the Old Testament. You know, the, what, what, what began as a, as a subordinate relationship, you know, under Yahweh emerges as a hostile relationship, an antagonistic relationship, a, a, a self-willed disobedient relationship so that it's, you know, Yahweh against the gods and Yahweh's people against the other people. Right. And it frames, you know, what, what happens in Old Testament history. Uh, so how did we all go from, we all knew who the true God was and everybody sort of got along to this. Well, 
<laughs> this is this is where you know all of that sort of you know began to fall, began to unravel, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. But it's really important because those gods uh, become you know Paul's principalities and powers. You know his his terminology there is is deliberate; it's not accidental. You know Paul very rarely uses the word demons. Yes, uh, he no, does he it doesn't. occasionally. No, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And and when he does in First Corinthians ten, what passage is he is he tracking through first corinthians 10 well lo and behold it's deuteronomy 32 wow isn't that a coincidence (laughs) Um, but you you get that but look at his other terminology thrones dominions powers principalities authorities i mean used in other literature and in the new testament uh, in other passages these are all dominion terms these are all geographic rulership terms Uh, again wow what a coincidence you know (laughs) uh you know paul's theology is drawn, is framed, you know, by this whole idea. It, it, it has explanatory power for the us versus them, you know, sort of feel, you know, that emerges uh, in, in the biblical story about Israel and then eventually the church. There seems to be a theme in the book about God's ultimate goal, his ultimate plan is to establish a new Eden, uh, and I guess we can say that that's analogous in a way to the new heaven and the new earth and the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. But where he starts, he starts with the call to Abraham as basically that's the foundation to lay, to have the, the nation of Israel, the Israelites, as the, the beginning of that foundation to, to start a new Eden. Yeah, you get, I mean, you, you get Eden. And then, you, you know, you have a fall, but you get Eden, then you get the flood, and then it's like, okay, you know, here we are on the other side of the flood, we get the Babel thing going on, and, and it's as though, you know, God says, okay, fine, you know, whatever, you guys go over there, and, you know, I'm going to put you, again, under these other gods, we'll see how that works, we'll give you what you want, apparently. And then, you know, it's as though God decides, well, to really move back to this, again, to start to recover what was lost in Eden, I'm just need, I need, just need to start over. And so he creates Israel. And again, in, in terms of the literary artistry of, of Scripture, there are – I didn't get into too many of these. There are, there are, there's some of this in, in this book. But there are a number of, of parallels between Adam and Israel, you know, for instance, yeah. uh, t- typological parallels. And again, it's not accidental. It, one is supposed to make you think of the other. Um, but again, it, it – that alone, if you sort of grasp that and seize it, then okay, okay, you know, Adam, Israel, Israel's, you know, this, this, this harkens back to Eden. I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, God's going to, you know, try to try this again, and it begins there. You know, it's just as you say, and, and then it's this progressive attempt to try to sort of get a beachhead, you know, in the midst of the nations, in the midst of the other gods, and frankly, overcoming the, the, the hard-heartedness. Uh, of people and, and, you know, their fallibility too. Uh, but I think if we, if we track through this effort, it also helps explain really why uh, the incarnation was, was essential. And I hint at this in the book too. Again, there, there, there are a lot of things in the book that, as I said in the, in the very first chapter, I view the book as a starting place. Uh, in other words, get all this on the table and and this will this will sort of frame how we need to think about scripture, and then you know we'll drill down and hopefully in a second book. But this whole notion of of the incarnation why why does the Messiah have to be you know God and man and, and all that kind of stuff? Well, it's because 
The only way the covenants are going to get fulfilled is if God does it himself. Okay, Jesus is, again, ultimately the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Sinai covenant. He's the only one that can keep the law. The Davidic covenant, the Davidic kings, you know, basically, there, there are a couple of good ones, but most of them are apostate anyway. Yeah, it you seems know, like God is just... law keepers. It seems like God is just like, God is just like, fine, you know, if you guys are going to keep screwing everything up, I'll just come down and do it myself. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. There, there's a certain, you know, feel to that. And then that idea also is... You know, there's there's a there's another another piece of that, and what what Old Testament scholars call remnant theology. In other words, God is perfectly willing to let this thing run out. You know, with with the free will, free will beings, both human and and non-human. Um, but if He needs to step in and preserve a remnant, in other words, to keep the whole thing from just dying completely, He'll do that. Yeah. And there are there are places and episodes in Scripture where God does that. Uh, again, this this whole I'm going to preserve a remnant so this doesn't completely die. I'm going to rescue it, and we're going to we're going to try it over again. And we're going to work the plan. And again, there is no plan B. God is committed to His original plan because He could, again, He could just step in and say, "Well, you know what? I'm just going to destroy everybody, <laughs> <laughs> shuffle the deck, right? Oh, just like let's just let's just take care of this right here and now, and I'm going to go off and do something else. You know, <laughs> you know, he did that with Moses, and and this was something that used to raise a theological yeah. question with us. All us seminary yeah. boys sitting around eating lunch 35 years ago, we'd all talk about that and say, why does the Bible say that 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 it took the man Moses to change the mind of God because God said, I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to start the whole covenant all over in you, Moses. And Moses was like, no, 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 no. If you do and that. His, and his answer, yeah, his answer is interesting. You know, the, the whole thing about what will the, you know, what will the Canaanites say? You know, what, yes. what are the neighbors going to say? You know, what? exactly. It's the same thing like with, with Job <laughs> one and two, where sure, you know, the Hasatan, uh, the Satan, you know, gets uppity yes. in the divine counselor me meeting. And God could have, I always think of time bandits. Have you guys ever seen time bandits? You know, the evil one just mm -hmm. looks at one of his flunkies and says, you know, he blows him up and then he says, yeah. don't ever talk to me like that again. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure, sure. God could have said, you know, you know, there's the fireball. Like, don't ever talk yeah. to me like that again. But the problem is, the problem is if he'd have done that, the question is still on the table. Because what what the what Hasatan says is yeah you know Job's a great guy but it's only because he has this wonderful life and you know if if he was suffering if you did this to him or that to him he cursed you to your face so he impugns God's assessment of Job he impugns God's wisdom he impugns again God's really knowledge of of this this person you know this this person that he you know ultimately uh, created him. And so, yeah, God could have just blown that guy away, and we, you know we move on with the divine council meeting. But the question would still be on the table, and so the the book of Job is not primarily about lessons we learn in suffering, even though there's a lot of those. It's really about how God's character needs to be demonstrated, uh, you know, in, in in a true way. In other words, Hasatan needs to be shown to be wrong. And so Job does suffer, and God has to has to let him suffer all the way up to you know the, the point of death, because he you, you also can't have left on the table 
you know, the, the question of, oh, well, yeah, you know, Job, Job suffered a lot, but he did okay. But if you would have done this to him, then he would have, you know, turned tail and cursed you to your face. No, the questions have to be dealt with. They have to be, you know, removed in the end. And God has to shown to be right. And Hasatan has to sh be shown to be wrong. So, you know, <laughs> again, God is committed to governing this way with, with, again, free will beings. And he's working his plan. He's not going to just destroy, uh, you know, evil because that would mean destroying everybody else. So he's going to have his way. He, he will step into, into history. He will, you know, save the remnant. He'll do this, that. You know, most of it is providence, you know, God using his imagers, using people. And again, imagers that are not human to get the task done and move the program, you know, kick the can down the road, so to speak. Uh, but that that's biblical theology. I mean, it, it's not going to comfort the Calvinist. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it's, that, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, that just isn't the picture. You know, it's a nice system. I get it, you know, but it's not really going to conform to a number of things that you see. Now, how do you feel about that passage uh, where, and this was enlightening to me the first time I learned this about Hasatan. Uh, when you look at the Job passage and it's got the article in the English before the mm -hmm. name Satan. So the Satan, it's more a title. Um, and when you look at that, um, I ask the question, and and, I'll, and and trust me, I'm not I'm not trying to lead you anywhere in this or anything like that. You're too smart for that, anyway. But I I need to understand what you view this passage as. This whole story of Job, um, it's a matter of belief to say it's a literal story that took place. It's a matter, perhaps, of uh, I, I might label as again, not mm -hmm. to belabor this point, of agnosticism. This is well, it might have happened, or it could be just an allegorical tale, or whatever. Um, do you see this in its context in the language when you study it? This story of Job, does it does it look more like like the the author? is writing about a literal event or does this come across more like uh, you almost see the the olympians you know playing chess with the uh, with humans in, in in that picture comes to mind when you look at this mm -hmm. story of the satan approaching god yeah it's very similar yeah i mean on on a theological level i don't think it matters but you know again as far as your your question i think what what the point of job is is whether, you know, whether like this was a, a quote unquote, you know, and, and even this is, is sort of a, a, an inescapably poor way to say it, <laughs> but it, is this in real time, you know, right. a, a, like an event or, or is this sort of like, well, l let's just talk about, let, let's just storify the idea that, there is conflict and uh, decisions. There are decisions made in, in the spiritual realm that affect, you know, what's going on here, you know, that, that sort of thing. So is it designed to just, is it a story, you know, that, that isn't literally true designed to, you know, teach that, that idea or, you know, is, is this like a play by play, you know, narrative right. of, a re of a real time event that, that is really frankly designed to teach us the same thing. That's why I say in, in the end, it doesn't really matter. You know, for Nor me, can we I ever think, probably really know. <laughs> so. I don't. I don't. Yeah, that, that's. 
I mean, ultimately, you, you can't really know. And I, I think Job, though, is a good illustration of, you know, and, and a lot of you know Christians freak out when they hear the word myth. You know, uh, yeah. folks, myth. You know, I'll, I'll give you the here. myth is theological spin on real events. <laughs> okay. There you go. Something happens, you know, in, in real space, time, reality, you know, on earth, you know, to people. And so myth is the notion of, okay, this happened to me or this happened to somebody else. And you're assigning a, a sort of divine explanation, a divine flavoring to those very real events. Yes. Uh, so, you know, myth is theological spin of things that really did happen. And, you know, but, but people are so troubled by, by the idea of myth. It's, it's just theologizing history. That, that's all it is. And we do this right now. For instance, if I was looking for a job and I got a job, I might run it over, you know, I'd call a, a friend and say, hey, you know, the Lord, the Lord gave me this, this great job, you know, and then you relate the circumstances. Well, I saw this in the paper and I had a resume, you're like right with me, you know, I was driving somewhere else and, you know, it just hit me, you know, boy, I, I, you know, I should just drop this thing off before I go to this other place over here. And lo and behold, this person was right there that I needed to talk to and we had a personal connection with somebody else we know, and it was so providential. And we sat down and we had a five or ten minute discussion. They called me the next day and I got the job. Well, you attribute that to, again, the, the, the providence of God, you know, being in the right place at the right time, again, because of the concatenation of events of all of the lives involved, that, again, God could providentially arrange you know, so that this is the outcome. What you've just done is myth, right? Okay. Yeah, myth <laughs> you, is kind of a theologized about real events, and so you know you look at something like like Job. If that's only if that is the only intent of the writer to teach us again that hey, what happens to you is connected some way to the unseen world here. Well, good. That, that's a great lesson, you know, to, to learn. I'm, I'm going to take that with me and and think about that. Maybe I should live as though God is interested in what happens to me and what I do, and 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 expect, you know, that that sort of thing, and and just you know try to try to take what happens to me and put it in, into the into the scope of a bigger plan. I mean, that, that's a great theological lesson. Myth, and and myth, to me, if it's that, that's great. Myth can you be know, a four-letter word. Time, myth can many be times referred to. Great. You know, I've many times used the reference call and talking about, look, I'm I'm separating myself outside the box of faith for a moment to talk about looking back in as the biblical mythology. And I've, I've used that before. And I say I'm not saying it's it's fake. I'm saying I'm, I'm, I've got to categorize it as the biblical mythology so we can understand it. And uh, so uh, that's very good points you made there. Well, Scotty, I was going to add that myth is like a four letter word, both literally and figuratively. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It can be. <laughs> well, it, it is. It, people just fundamentally misunderstand it. You know, it, a myth has has divine beings as as the characters, part of the at least part of the story, important characters. Again, it, it's just it's theologizing events that happened. You know, and like, hey, what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, but but again, we we've just been taught it, it, it's one of those words that you know people hear now and they just react viscerally because of of there's so many attacks you know on uh, the validity of 
XYZ biblical story or, or some theological idea that, that they just assign some sort of sinister motivation, even to the use of the term. Oh, I've, I've had and people say really to me. It's really unfortunate. I've had people say to me, my redeemer is not a myth. And I say, well, you're missing the point I'm making. <laughs> so, right. Right. Uh, so yeah. I, uh, This is a good spot, I think, gentlemen, to talk about uh, the Garden of Eden. And uh, as I mentioned before, Scotty has written a whole book about the Nephilim, Dr. Heiser. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask both of you guys, uh, you know, I guess the quote unquote myth of Eden, you know, what that whole thing means. And it's specifically uh, the events in Eden, like the nature of the Nakash, is that Satan? Uh, also, the whole idea of when the uh, he God tells the Nakash or, or the, the snake, he says, you know, I'm going to put in between your seed and the woman's seed, what that all means. And, uh, you know, Scotty, you know, we'll get your input on this as well. I'll be quiet. I'm going to let this is Dr. Heiser's the guest. I'll just ask some <laughs> what, questions. If I need. What's the specific question? Uh, about uh, I guess really the specific question there is about the about the whole concept of the enmity between the uh the, the spawn of the snake and the uh, descendants of the woman what that whole thing yeah, means I, I i think what 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 the reference there is again when when the nakash is judged and is you know cast down to the eretz you know the ground but also eretz is of course a word used for the underworld right uh, in hebrew and other semitic languages too you know, he becomes Lord of the Dead. You know, because this is this is the place now where the divine presence is is withdrawn. There is no Eden, and so there there is there's no paradise here. We're not going to live forever here uh, on this place as it is anyway. And then, of course, you got the sort of the the double whammy here with the underworld concept as well. Uh, humanity is now destined to die. I mean, you you are going to die. And so in that sense, the, the, the Nakash, though cast down, sort of has an ownership, uh, a claim, uh, if you will, on this, the seed of men, you know, on, on humanity. And so I, th- I think that is, is the backdrop, pardon upon the fallout of the fall, where this there's going to be this adversarial or, or uh, and, you know, a relationship of antipathy uh, uh, between the initially again the, the the Genesis three villain and of course Adam Eve and, and and their offspring, but as it grows, this is this is a a phrasing again seed of the seed of the Nakash, seed of the serpent. You know, in both testaments, uh, for instance, Jesus you know uses it of the Pharisees. Um, basically, anyone opposed to God's own solution to rectifying this mess are going to be aligned with the villain who caused the mess. And the, that, that's, that, that's the broad way. That's the way that leads to death as opposed to, again, you know, the, the way that you know, God is going to provide uh, for redemption. So I think, again, this, this enmity idea is very you know, you know, theological, if we've gone, going back five minutes ago, very mythic. Okay, uh, you know, <laughs> in that sense, the sense we talked about, where you've got a not only a destiny problem <laughs> uh, as far as mortality and estrangement from God, 
But you also have a, an adversarial problem in that what God wants to do in terms of the broad picture of redemption and restoring even now, has, he has enemies and, and, and his people have enemies. And so it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be it, – it's not something that's just going to be turned over and corrected immediately. I, I I have a couple of questions. I just want to and and guys uh, don't uh, tell me if I'm going too far off the the, the plan here for tonight. But um, you're, fine. you're okay, Scotty. What's okay? I, I I wanted to ask you a question about the whole serpent seed doctrine. I was about to I was about to bring that up, Scotty. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> um, because I I've written about that and. Uh, I always say I, I, my research on the Nephilim and all of this and, and everything in Genesis is not, certainly not exhaustive by any means. I'm presenting some ideas, some things I've seen. I've had critics compare me to Christian identity movement because I've promoted a serpent seed. And I said, no. I said, you can start with a hypothesis at the same beginnings, but you may not reach the same conclusions at the end. I happen to think Christian identity, mm -hmm. by the way, white supremacy is, is an adulteration of those passages. Uh, I came to a very different conclusion. Um, that's right. I, You're not that Scotty Roberts. Just, I'm not just... that. That's the other Scotty Roberts. Yes, we were talking about that. There's another Scotty Roberts out there who is a white supremacist. And it's like, thank you very much. Isn't it really? <laughs> yes. He gets a lot of criticism oh out there. Um, well, that's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. <laughs> I am not a white supremacist. What you just said right here, <laughs> no, that's not me. Um, but uh, I've got undergone this criticism and my, in a very brief nutshell, in 10 seconds, I'll try to get it in so you can respond to this. I, I had always seen the, the, uh, the cursing of Nakash, the enmity, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, as being a dual seed, and that the need for the redeemer, the the uh, uh, I'm sorry, the 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 Messiah, which in mm -hmm. Jewish terms became synonymous with the kinsman redeemer, um, the one who would be one of us redeemer. Um, uh, what do you think of that theory altogether? The the whole serpent seed. Um, I'm not even going to call it a doctrine. The, the 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 issue that there were dual bloodlines in humanity created in Eden, uh, the the bloodline of Cain and the Kenites, of course, being of Nakash and of Seth, the thirdborn son of Adam, being that of the pure human blood, if you will. And I've been taking a test for using that term, by the way. Oh, you're a racist. And I said, no, I'm talking about <laughs> pure human blood versus that mixed with celestial beings. Okay, there it is. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't see any evidence for uh, cohabitation uh, with Eve to produce a seed. I also don't, don't know of any verse that connects uh, what happens in Genesis 3, the Nakash, with the Nephilim. Uh, tr trust me, that, that, that would be really handy uh, if, if that existed in, in my own thinking in a number of ways. But I don't know of any, of any passage like that. I, I have wondered the, if, the, if the Nakash, uh, by definition, and you know the definition of the word Nakash, and, and it's got it, it led to the Nakashta, you know, which which Moses elevated the brazen shining serpent on a pole, and then of course the Elohim and description of the Elohim in Psalm eighty two, as bearing some of the same qualities, and and so is that too much of an extrapolation or uh, in yeah, length? I, I I think it is because let, let's take luminescence. Okay, a across the board in basically every culture, uh, 
this is a property or a, a stock description element of any divine being, any God, uh, regardless of, of what the level of, you know, what level they are in the pantheon. Well, does that mean they're all related? Does that mean, you know, that there was, there's a cause effect relationship between them? Well, certainly not. I mean, you, there's, there's no way that, that you could build, you know, that sort of argument based upon that property. And there are other properties like that. And you combine the properties. It, it, it doesn't mean they all come from one another and they're all, you know, breeding and they're all related at some point ultimately. You know, they're, they're, there's just there's just a whole lot more to it than that. So I don't I don't think you can build again that case. Again, I I don't know of, of any any passage that connects uh, the Nakash uh, actually with the, the the Nephilim. The other the other thing is in, in Second Temple literature, their their answer for the proliferation of evil, you know, and why why humanity gets corrupted is actually not Genesis three. And this is something right, that confounds right. you know Christians, you know that. You know, again, because of the way Christians have historically taken Romans five twelve, you know the, you know the, the whole effect of the sin of Adam and all that stuff, which, which I don't buy. Uh, I don't have. I don't take the traditional view of that. But they're, they're just flummoxed. You know, when they, if you introduce Second Temple ideas and say, you know what, guess what? You know, in the in the entire Old Testament, you know, there's no verse when the human condition is talked about. You know, why people are why there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no verse in the Old Testament that ever traces it back to Genesis 3. Okay, uh, true. You know, the, it, they just talk about it in different ways. And, of course, in the Second Temple period, it's always going back to Genesis 6, you know, because of the sin of the Watchers and all this kind of stuff. So right away, I mean, you've, you've got sort of this Genesis 6 versus Genesis 3 thing going on, or I, th I think even better, they're – they're, they're just they're, they're two things that are illustrative of divine rebellions you know that, and so in other words God has enemies God has a problem humans have a problem because God has enemies you know that kind of thing mm -hmm. so they they operate sort of in tandem but they're never actually you know connected in in this one led to this and this one's the cause of this now if you look though the effect not the cause I mean I I don't think there's anything that even in second temple literature that that the intent of the watchers you know was to corrupt the messianic line and all that kind of stuff right but but the effect of it if it had gone unaddressed actually would be that because have if happened. you have every yep. if you have every human you know sort of you know quote unquote infected or, or caught up in this problem well that that is an issue if again you're assuming, that you need to have a messianic line that goes all the way back to Eve. In other words, that that would have been a problem. That that would have just you know marred that and, and impeded it. But to, that's different than saying, well, this was the this was the intent from the get go and all that kind of thing. Um, I mean, there's there's again even in Second Temple literature, you don't you don't read that kind of thing. But you do have on the other side of it. Oh, if this would have gone unchecked, then then what do we do? You know that kind well, well, of thing. It, so. It seems to me it almost. I think that. I think that part of it there. Oh, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. We, I don't think we heard each other right away. Um, uh, it, it always begs that question of, for me of whether um, how do I want to state this? Um, it seems that God's plan, and, and I'm talking purely just looking at it from the outside. God's plan was so many times. There were so many attempts to thwart it, or it was thwarted, and God did something or stepped in or intervened, um, that it, it it seemed like almost like 
a much more trivial way we say it now. Well, the devil made me do it, or the devil's hand was in it, or whatever. Um, when we don't know that for sure, and we, you know, we just use that as a catchphrase. Is this the way they wrote back then? Do you? And again, maybe this this is just wrong-headed questioning on my part well, because me, I'm not let, trying let, to ask. Let me give you yeah. an, let me okay. give you a for instance here. All right. I think one of the biggest arguments against a a sinister divine knowledge of the plan of redemption, which, which you have to have to have certain Old Testament events, again, be aimed at disrupting the messianic line. Right. I think one of the best arguments against that is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. Had the rulers of this world known you know, what, what the fallout was going to be of the crucifixion, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, so so that tells me that they did not know the plan. They did not but, but understand course, these pieces. But but of course, uh, now, according to the they, plan, they, they, the, they could uh, be aiming. But of course, according to the plan, the the You're the, out. the the I'm sorry. According to the plan, the execution of Jesus or the sacrifice of the Lamb of God was a necessary thing. And so, had when Paul writes, had the rules, rulers, rulers of the world known this, they would never have done this. What would have happened to the plan of salvation, the redemptive act by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God? Uh, these these are the well, things I, that create paradox. I think there is. Well, I think there is an answer to that because, I mean, again, once you get past what actually happened, you're dealing with speculation. So this is speculation. But let's just say that, and, and this is. Again, this is a big stretch because even after the resurrection, the disciples don't get it. I mean, the New Testament actually says even in the upper room, Jesus had to open their minds. I mean, and he's standing there. It's the resurrection. So, so the idea that they could have known, again, is 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 really an extraordinarily difficult argument to make because there's so much evidence to the contrary that that anybody knew the plan, right. except for God. But let, let's just let's just put that on hold and let's say that they could you know understand it or you know jesus would have got here and explained hey this is what needs to happen and you know if if, if i give my life you know as a ransom for everybody then all this stuff's going to turn out okay and we'll get the kingdom of god again i think he could have presented that to his people to the priests and if the priest would have said we believe we believe you and jesus voluntarily laid down his life then you would have still had everything go into effect. Well, we, we Again, used that's, to. That's that's we, utter speculation. We we used to call, call. We had a seminary professor like contingent dualism. You know, would Jesus have been the Messiah if this? Uh, you know, and so on. And uh, there was all these contingencies. And I, I understand that some of this is just an exercise in trying to question things, to figure them out, to understand them better, and yeah. not to. I'm not trying to cast doubt or dispersion or counterfactual argument. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I think again, if 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 we're going to talk, you know, counterfactualities, and isn't that sort of an oxymoron? But yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he let's say that only you could, another way you could look at it is only Jesus knew, and, and he was able to convince them. Look, I, I I know you accept me as Messiah. I know you love me. I love you. But we need to do this. And if you believe on the Son of God, then I need to die. You know, in your place, I'm 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 voluntarily, sacrificially offering my life, because this is this is the the linchpin to the whole plan of salvation, and we need to go through with this in some way. Um, again, you would have had 
the whole ripple effect of the you know the plan of salvation would have been accomplished the atonement the whole all this other stuff again it's a counterfactual it's utter speculation sure. but again i think one of the, one of the one of the, the stronger again contrary arguments to this certain you know these these you know bloodline and i use the term bloodline too and I, everybody not everybody means the same thing by it i understand that but this whole thing about the intentionality of certain things in the Old Testament to cut off the messianic line. While I think, again, in the Genesis 6 incident, that would have been the effect. I don't see evidence that they're intelligently saying, okay, we got to do this, this, and this, because this is going to come down the road. I think they're right. largely ignorant of the plan. Now, now when, he, when Jesus gets there, there's no doubt they know who he is. Right, right. You know, and, the, and the demons are the, are the only ones, ironically, who refer to him as the son of the most high, yeah. <laughs> yes. Because they, they know who the he only is. Ones to connect these dots, you know. Yeah. Wasn't that the uh, the the maniac of uh, Gadara who said, yeah. "What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of Man, Son of the Most High, or something like that?" Yeah, they so, recognize yeah, the him right high, off. Of course, harkens. Yeah, and the whole Most High thing again harkens way back into the Old Testament. You know, the, the, right. So they, I mean, they they know who he is, but it it, it seems again that, that because you know, of, of what happens with Judas and what happens with the priest, you know, Satan entering in and all this kind of stuff, that that their solution is, okay, he's here. We got to get rid of him. Got to kill him. You know, I mean, they're not saying, hey, no, wait a minute. Hey, you mean if we kill this guy, that's that's the the, the thing that needs to happen so that we get destroyed? Oh, yeah, count us. That, that seems like very yeah. one-dimensional thinking on the part of a dem- <laughs> of a demonic force. Right. It's like, hey, would, let's just kill just God and he would form you know, so I, I, I well, I, uh, what I think is they, they know that he's here to do something because he announces the kingdom of God. He sends out the 70 again. The number's not accidental. The, 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 the announcement of the kingdom of God coincides with casting out of demons. You have all these, all these really theologically pregnant acts and right. statements of Jesus. They know who he is and they know he is there to, again, kickstart the kingdom of God. So to me, it, it actually is logically that they would think this guy has to go because if he, the, the longer he stays, we're in trouble. You know, we got you know we got to get rid of him. They don't really know why, they don't really know what what the actual plan is, but they know he's integral to it. And I think they're blinded. I think they were duped. I think he goes yeah. in certain places. You know, um, you know, uh, those of you know, the people who have read the book will know that I pull out a few different episodes where he Jesus basically goes to a place that has a long history in terms of the powers of darkness and just pokes them in the eye. This Mount know, Herman. Just come and get me. Here I am. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, are you talking about he, Mount Herman? He does this. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, the whole thing with Mount Herman, because right after he, right after the transfiguration, of course, before that, it was the, upon this rock scene. What did, yes. what did the, the gospel writers say from this point on, he began to speak to his disciples about his death. Yeah, you know that that's the time when that comes up, and th- and so then they go to Jerusalem. You get the triumphal entry, and a week later he's dead. You know, it, it it's just again it, this is choreographed, but it, it's very understandable to me that if if you know who this is, and you know, okay, he, he, there's only really one reason why the king is here, the son of the most high is here, because you know, the, God must be starting this this thing again that that you know we've opposed all this time, so. Now he's finally here, you know, like the parables, you know, sending all these prophets and then finally, oh, I'll send my son and they'll listen to him. You know, again, there, there, there's just messaging behind all this. Right. It, it's very, it's very understandable to me that, that they would conclude and it, it's coherent on, on one level. He's got to go. Not again, not knowing that 
when you commit that act, when he does die, okay, he's not going to stay dead. I mean, they, they, we, we don't have verses. And this, this, again, freaks Christians out. You know, I'll go into a church and say, hey, do you realize you don't have a single verse that has a dying, rising Messiah like, like yeah. in the Bible? Like there's, there's no verse that says that. All of this stuff that you believe and that Jesus taught and the, and the disciples have to learn even after the resurrection, it's all just scattered all over the place. You got to pull you, it all you, together. Right. It can only be known in hindsight. And, and again, you know, again, it, like I said, it freaks Christians out to, to sort of show them the obvious. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you, you know, what's very interesting it about is, the way you present but, this, that a lot it, of people it's very don't, cryptic. A, a lot of people don't get is what you're doing in the way you've just presented that is you've presented, in a sense, like you were talking early, earlier, the mythology that is behind the religious teaching. Uh, even though we're dealing with people that, you know, by faith we believe were real and these events happened, you've presented the mythology, which shows you were just starting to say something about, I think you said cryptic or something like that. It, it, it presents this very... Uh, it, it brings back, in a sense, the mystery of God's hand in things as See, that, opposed that, That's why I, I tell people, you read the Unseen Realm, you will read your Bible again for the first time. Yeah. You know, because that, that's what happened to me, you know, just sort of going through all this stuff. So I know it's going to happen to you. And that, that's a good thing. It's okay. Um, you know, you're going to, you're going to be troubled. You know, it's kind of like getting in a car and Mike's driving you to your destination. And I'm telling you, look, we're going to get to the, to, to the place that you know is familiar, but you're looking out the window and you're thinking, man, I have no idea where I'm at. What did I do? What should I have gotten in this car? You know, what's this guy going to do to me? Uh, it, it's like that, but, but you just have to, you got to go along for the ride. And frankly, I, I try to tell people, look, if you do go along for the ride, when you when you go back and read read your Bible, yeah, on the one hand, you'll never be able to read it again the same way. But on the other hand, it's the thrill of discovery all over again. And and you will see things that you never knew were there. You will see connections you never knew were there. And 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 the story, again, the the the, the cohesiveness and the coherence and the just just the interconnectedness of the story is just so fascinating and and so powerful that you'll you'll get to the other side of this and instead of you know cursing the day that you got in the car it, it'll just be a wonderful thing but you just have to be patient you just you, you got to trust me a little bit you, you know uh, what i think a lot of people in christianity and faith are missing it's it's missing that what you just said that that awe-inspiring beneath the surface story that that brings this out of uh, being for lack of a better word churchified and more it brings it into i i, I love what you're doing Precisely. here and I, I gotta tell you what you've done you made me want to go read your book right now because i haven't read it you got to Rob. <laughs> you, you you got to scotty hey uh doc, dr heiser i want to ask you are you ready for a controversial question Okay. <laughs> is this, this going to be why my fantasy team got eliminated? <laughs> no, is that what I'm going to get? Even worse. Uh, okay. I was reading about in the book about the lost ten tribes of Israel. You mentioned this, and you Did mentioned mention that? yeah, you mentioned the the important. 
to do a quick search. You've had that happen to me before. You mentioned the. Well, you mentioned the importance of those tribes and why it's important for uh, that the, the tribes are scattered by the Assyrians. Nobody knows where they went and why it's important for the apostles after the resurrection of Christ to go preach to all the nations. Because the implication there is, is not only are they bringing the nations back in uh, to to God's plan, but also the possibility that those ten, those 10 tribes are scattered elsewhere among those peoples. Now, there are two tribes left. You have Judah and you have Benjamin. So th- those are the descendants are, those are the ancestors of what is to now the the modern Jews, correct? So, in a, if in a the, manner of speaking, right? If if the ten tribes, and if it says that they're all in the end times or in the Book of Revelation, they're all going to be gathered in back into the land. What? Here's the controversial. Here's the <laughs> right. Here's the controversial part. Okay. Uh-huh. What's the implications for the modern state of Israel? Yeah, you know, the the whole... Boy. Told you. <laughs> well, it, it's... It, it's really a... It's really kind of a misnomer, you know, isn't it? Because what, what you're alluding to is you're alluding to the, the thought that biblical prophecy anticipates, you know, Old Testament prophecy that talks about the return from exile. Right. Uh, was inclusive of all the tribes, you know, not just the two. You know, you get the Ezekiel vision with the sticks and all that kind of stuff, and we don't need to go back into it. But the the prophets thought that exile was over when all the tribes are home. I mean, putting it simply. So, you know, you you look at the whole situation, and if if you're literalizing it, you're worried about this question. You know, oh, you know, what... How do we how do we know that we're like ethnically Jewish and how do we know that we got this bloodline or that bloodline or whatever? Well, to, to be you know blunt about it, the concern over that question sort of skips over the whole concept of the people of God as a circumcision neutral body. Uh, this thing we we call the, the the church, you know, in the New Testament, and the church you know, really becoming the new people of God, right. you know, the Israel of God in the New Testament. Right. So in, in that sense, if, if you're going to observe what the New Testament says about the people of God, that no longer is, is this idea, this concept, uh, that the family of God is not now tied to a, a tribal relationship to Yahweh, but includes the Gentiles, okay, then I don't really assign any importance to tracking down my tribal lineage or not, because the New Testament, I think, is is abundantly clear. I don't I don't know how Paul could have made it any clearer than he does it in Galatians three. You know, mm-hmm. if if you are Christ, you're Abraham's seed, an heir according to the gospel. You know, and, and, you know in that chapter he talks about whether you're Jew or Gentile. It, it's it's the faith of Abraham that determines whether you're a descendant of Abraham, not the flesh. I, I don't know how how much clearer he could have made that. And, and this is why you have this whole discussion, you know, nowadays, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the term supersessionism. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, it, 
I get asked, well, are you a supersessionist? Well, frankly, I think for me to be a supersessionist, like they're asking if I am that would require something approximating omniscience. Uh, and, and I don't have that. So what I tell people is, look, it's quite clear that, that the, the church has replaced Israel as the people of God. If you don't like that, just tear Galatians 3 right out of your Bible. There's also, a derog- right. There's also a term that's used derogatorily, replacement theology. Yeah, and it, it's, it's kind of – it is a derogatory term. It's, it's, yes. It's the it's – the, <laughs> And of course you're an anti-Semite if you believe that. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, but on, on the other hand, can I really say that when Paul talks about Israel – in his letters, and frankly, you can make it wider than Paul, but Paul's the big guy here. When, when Paul talks about Israel in his letters, does he never, does he never think, does he never have in the back of his mind the land of Israel? In other words, the, the, the ethnic people of Israel, uh, you know, as far as an eschatological future. Uh, Again, I, I don't think you can say that either. Now, that's a long, convoluted way of saying I don't think the question is actually clear or the, or the answer is actually clear in Scripture. Since I view prophecy uh, the first time around as intentionally cryptic, I actually believe that that's the way it's going to work the second time around. And so I can go through all of that and, and, and basically you know, I, I'll end up by saying, look, there, there's no reason, there's no theological reason to look at the nation of Israel today as the exclusive people of God. That is contrary to New Testament thinking. Again, if you're a Christian, that ought to matter. On the other hand, there, there's no theological reason to diss them uh, you know, and treat them poorly. When they do right, we should commend them. When they do wrong, we should say so. Because frankly, God looked at his own people in the Old Testament when they did wrong. He said so. Right. So... There, there, there's no, there's no reason why we should be moral cowards when, you know, for instance, the nation of Israel would do something wrong. You know that that again, if God does it, that that's good enough for me. Then I, I ought to be able to do it too because righteousness is righteousness. It's it's not going to change. So a, a lot of these political questions, I really don't think, are are terribly coherent. It, it's just that we've sort of grown up because of, of the, the special relationship that the U.S. has with the nation of Israel, again, because of the nation of Israel's own, the modern state of Israel's own circumstances as to how, how that came about. And again, this heritage, you know, this Western heritage of the Bible, we've sort of agglomerated these ideas and and come out, again, many Christians with this notion that, you know, you, you can never say anything wrong about the state of Israel or something like that because of the people of God. I think that's a misguided notion, but I don't think what the New Testament does teach is a license to, you know, be anti-Semitic or right, exactly, or be yeah. on the be on the side that opposes Israel just by default. I mean, because yeah. I, you know, I, I see I see far too much of that too. You know, and again, it, we, we sort of just assign theological traditions to our, our current political circumstance that. It, it, it just doesn't really work neatly in any direction. But there are those that put Israel, the, the modern nation state of Israel beyond reproach, as in everything they do is right because they right. are God's people right. and just, then you just have like the, the eschatological right. ramifications of that. Yeah, well, again, it, that, that, 
that set of circumstances didn't even exist when we had, you know, the state of Israel in the Old Testament period. When right. when they were when they were wicked, God said, "You're wicked," and, and knock it off. You know, and, yeah. yeah. And if, we're the, if we're the people of God today, <laughs> when when they do wrong, we're I feel quite free in saying, "Hey, they're they're just not doing the right thing here." And and, uh, and I hope, uh, of I course, hope they change. Uh, of of course, when the way I was taught, uh, uh, I want I want to attribute this to seminary and. And our systematic theology, it may have been chick tracts. I don't know what it was. But, but there was, we were always taught that, that the, the Jews were God's children. And then there would be this parenthetical period, the age of grace, uh, where the Jews rejected the, the coming Messiah. And so it was opened up to all. And the age of grace, which ends, of course, in eschatological matters, the rapture, the tribulation, depending on if you're pre-mill or post-mill or mid-mill or whatever you are. And then it, the whole Jewish story, if you will, would pick up again once this parenthetical period was done. And so that the, the children of Israel will once again be the, the children of Israel after this parenthetical period that we're still in, uh, expires. Is that the way you see the theology of eschatology? The way it's and of course, there's no one passage that says, and here it is. You know, it's again, it's all yeah, I, piecing I it all together. I don't like any of the systems. I mean, I, I don't like any of them because they all cheat. Um, yeah, and, and they all have to cheat. The, the reason they all look beautiful is because they do cheat. You know, they. It's very easy to present you know, a position from any of these perspectives and make it look, you know, wonderfully coherent. Mm -hmm. Again, if you, you know, <laughs> where it doesn't work, you just assign those to the, the problem passage label and, and people have enough experience that they can sort of pick their way through that and, and invent some sort of answer. Like in what you've described is sort of, uh, sort of Ryrie dispensationalism, yes. you know, the, the era past Schofield. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, we all had to have a Schofield Bible when I was in uh, youth group <laughs> in Bible college. Right? What? You don't have a Schofield? <laughs> well, even even Ryrie and dispensationalism today had so much trouble with, with the new covenant uh, being fulfilled in terms of the church that he actually posits in that book, which was a classic for decades, that, that oh, well, the, the Bible must have a new new covenant so like you just invented another just new covenant created a new, a new dispensation the third <laughs> testament right <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just that's just crazy you know but <laughs> but people just do that and the other side does it too you know to to make it sound like like well nothing's going to really happen on earth it's all like in this ethereal heaven thing space yeah. whatever and it's just reacting you know over on the other side so i don't i don't like any of the systems i think they all have have real insight in places and i think they all cheat in places i have an uncle so, that goes so far as to call all of dispensationalism a heresy oh really <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah now dispensationalism like today now not not ryrie's book title um you you actually see a a closer relationship between dispensationalism and covenant theology or or let, more broadly non-dispensational systems um Really, that began in the 90s with uh, Bach and Blazing, you know, who taught at Dallas, and, and they came out with a book called Progressive Dispensationalism, which today the word progressive is kind of an unfortunate <laughs> yeah. title. But this was back in the 90s, and, and basically they were arguing for the, the, the core of their system, 
but also recognizing things like, you know what, there really is a close relationship between Israel and the church. We don't have to keep these things so diametrically opposed and separated like Ryrie had. Ryrie called that, that was one of his three sine qua non, you know, without which not the system dies. And, and so, you know, Ryrie taught at Dallas, you know, and, and so here you have two Dallas seminary professors at the time blazing somewhere else now, but um, saying, well, you know what, the Ryrie system, you know, it, it, it has weaknesses. It, it has things that really don't, you know, can't really be the product of good exegesis. And so we need to rethink this. And they did. Took some heat for it, but it was largely, you know, well accepted. And and you've you've had that system and the other side, covenant theology. The, the, the covenant theologians actually wrote a book. Uh, Vern Poitras wrote one called Understanding Dispensationalists. That was not a a you know a pejorative title and content. It was it was a sincere effort to, to explain. Okay, here's where we're at. Here's why we're not over here. And here's where the where the impasses are. And and the points of friction. And uh, every year for the last 20 years at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, there's been something called the Dispensational Study Group. And oftentimes the, the subject matter uh, will have people from both sides speak and, and dialogue about it. So that I think it's actually better uh, than it was. But as far as the systems themselves, uh, again, I, I, don't, I don't really like systems because they just – you know, my thing is, and, and like, like this is ever going to happen, uh, <laughs> what, what I'd like to see happen is I'd like to see someone rethink the whole prophetic topic where the New Testament is interpreted in light of Second Temple Jewish texts ah. and the Old Testament framed in its ancient Near Eastern context and also the Second Temple Jewish texts, uh, when they link back into the Old Testament, have that framed again by the original ancient Near Eastern context. In other words, just really go back and do exegesis on all of it, again, honoring the original ancient Near Eastern context and how that influenced and bled into the Second Temple period and then so finally the New Testament. Is now, half that job has been done. By Greg Beale, Beale's Revelation commentary, his massive New International Greek textual commentary, it, mm. it's just cluttered with Second Temple Jewish literature references. But nobody has taken that material and gone back and said, okay, all the places where this has roots into the Old Testament, let's look at them and think about what those Old Testament passages meant in their own original context, you know, apart from this. And, and I think if we did that, We'd come out with a, a new system. It might look more or less like some of the other ones, but I think you could you could build a more coherent uh, understanding. But I still think, at the end of the day, how this is all going to play out is still going to be cryptic deliberately. Well, hey, like there's the your timer. There's your next book. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for that. Well, gentlemen, we're kind of we're kind of running out of All time. That stuff I just said, forget yeah, it. <laughs> we're kind of running out of time. But Scotty, was there anything that you wanted to ask, real quick? Oh boy, there's I, I got I got a list, uh, so I, I, I can't even hit it. All I want to ask is if I can have a conversation with you some other time, um, because there's there's so much I want to to tap your brain on. And uh, um, are you going to the meetings in Atlanta? Uh, I am not going to make anything in Atlanta. Um, I okay. really wish I could. Um, 
But uh, there, there was one thing I did want to ask you, and I don't know if this is, can be a brief question or not. When, when I went to seminary, we were to mark and avoid those liberal theologians from Dallas Theological Seminary. I went to oh, Central yeah. ba- or uh, uh, Valley Baptist Theological Seminary, which was a yeah. break off of Central Baptist Theological. And yeah. uh, uh, one of the things that uh, it was Dr. Roland McCune. He was actually not a teacher of mine. He was my my closest friend's dad. And I we'd hang out in high school, and I'd get to talk to Dr. Roland McCune. And he he brought up to me once and you know this is funny you know you go to your buddy's house in high school and you sit and talk to his dad about systematic theology but he he uh, talked to me about what he called stair-step dispensationalism and i wanted to bring that up when you were talking about that and and uh, uh, far end of the spectrum from roland mccune a uh, christianity today writer um um philip yancey if you remember him mm-hmm. Uh, they, who, who wrote the Who wrote the famous article? I was a teenage fundamentalist. The, is that what Yancey wrote? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking he was put, he had a, he wrote a book called Disappointment with God, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the questions we never ask out loud. And I read this in the eighties, I think it was. But uh, both of them had a very similar theory. Dispen, this the stair step dispensational meaning. Uh, the, the further you got away from the original covenant, the higher the step got, meaning it was leading up to higher things, closer to God, further away from uh, old modes of covenant theology. And then uh, Yancey brought up the point, and this is what I want to ask you about and how it fits into this and what do you think about this, is he said, I believe God, and he says, far be it from me from to... to, to uh, uh, psychoanalyze God. He says, that's not my point here. He said, but he says, it seems to me that God was almost like, and he put it in these terms for the, just the common reader. He said, God is almost like a learning parent. And he said, uh, there were things that when he created humanity, he may have had a plan, but when he created humanity, he created something that he had never created before. Something that could tell him no. And, and make their own way or, or have their free will. And so he said, in a sense, you see in dispensationalism how God had to, he says, and he says, pardon me for saying this, almost learn how to deal with his creation. Do you think that there is any element of that in a popular cultural sense, so to speak, to dispensationalism, that this is actually an infinite, omnipresent, all-knowing, uh, almighty God who had to learn to deal with this creation. You know, I, I think in, in Ryrie's sort of, again, I, I hate to use the word classic, but in, in Ryrie's formulation, again, this is back in the 70s and the 80s when that when his book Dispensationalism Today was such a big deal. Yeah. If you remember that his he had these secondary tests for whether a dispensation was present or passing away. And it was the test failure judgment uh, criteria. Well, it, it, again, it, it was something that never made complete sense to me. Uh, but if you're going to look at it that way, test failure judgment, mm-hmm. then I think that idea, again, Ryrie would never say this. He would never say that that lends itself to this, this learning model of Yancey. But frankly, if you, if you adopt that test failure judgment, why would God keep doing that if he knew, again, all these outcomes, you know, sort of predetermined? It, it almost seems like, well, I got to put a test there and I know they're going to fail it, but, but 
you know, don't exactly know how and how they do it. That'll make, you know, then I have to come up with another one. And it, to, to me, it, it could lend itself, you know, to that kind of thinking, but I don't think Ryrie would ever admit that. But uh, hearing you articulate what Yancey said, I thought of that immediately, you know, because it makes God sort of, um, well, certainly it, adaptive or responsive adaptive and, probably a good and, word and you could, i mean adaptive and responsive doesn't require that god is learning anything but it could in other words you it, it's a shorter step to go from adaptive to learning than if you didn't have adapt and, and of course it was almost yeah. blasphemous to even suggest that the almighty god could learn something uh, and 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 in the cycle you're talking about we always talked about that cycle with with israel all through the old Testament. this this, you know, a test, failure, judgment. And this cycle kept repeating itself, and that seemed to usher in the new dispensations. So, I mean, you, you, you could look at, at, at God being a, adaptive or maybe maybe tolerant, tolerant and adaptive, you know, both, I, I think, you know, are, could, could be terms on the table. And again, because they don't require God learning, but yet they still reflect the way God handles uh, both human success, human obedience, and human rebellion, you know, I, I think somebody like Ryrie would, he, he might come up with his own term, he came up with a new, new covet, he might come up with some vocabulary here, but um, I think Ryrie could look at that situation and say, this is sort of what I mean, as opposed to God learning, because, you know, God lacked information here. Okay, In other well. words, there, there's, there's response uh, based upon uh, the event, you know, of, of, the outcome of whatever you know situation is, and then there's a response based upon oh now I have information that I didn't before, you know kind of thing. It they're they're close but they're not quite the same. So I think Ryrie again I don't I don't know where Ryrie was at with his Calvinism. He always struck me as as fairly Calvinistic. Yes. Um, that I think he would he would opt for that kind of framing of the situation as opposed to Yancey's. But again that. That's just a guess, but I think it's a reasonable guess. Dr. Heiser? Uh, based upon Ryrie, yeah. Dr. Heiser, we're almost out of time, but uh, tell us uh, where people can get the book. And also, uh, what when is this uh, happening in Atlanta? Oh, the, the people can get the book by really two ways. Uh, the two easiest ways are go up to theunseenrealm.com. You can order the book there. There's also a video trailer uh, about the book up there that's that's pretty well done. That p- people have, you know, they, they like. We we know because it gets lots of hits, you know, in, in the building. Um, you just go up to theunseenrealm.com. You can get the book there, or just go to Amazon, put, you know, the unseen realm, you know, in a search, and you'll find it. You go up to my website, and there'll be links there as well. Uh, yeah, I, underst- I understood that. Com. I understood that it sold like hotcakes like the first day. It, it did. We, we actually yeah. had a meeting today uh, about sort of looking back on it. It's three weeks old, you know, now. Right. So, you know, a couple of days over three weeks. But, yeah, the first the first printing and, you know, when I heard this, I mean, I wasn't I don't I don't make any of these decisions. You know how it goes. But it's like, well, we only printed 1500 of these and they literally sold out like in a couple hours. Wow. You know, and, and they were just sort of stunned by that. And then now if we have this lag between second printing. I mean, people can still order it, you know, and, and they'll, they'll get their book. They just won't get it in two days, you know, that kind of thing. But that, you know, that was a, was a good learning lesson, you know, because, you know, it was sort of this, this was a very different 
kind of book than, than they had ever done before. Uh, something academic that would be, you know, controversial. It's not a trade book, you know, kind of thing, but it's still very readable. If you go up to Amazon, I encourage people, you know, go up to Amazon and read the reviews. You'll see, you'll, you'll hear, you know, and see things like this a, a lot that, oh, this is a real academic book. It's just got all sorts of documentation. I was kind of intimidated, but gosh, it's readable. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I can actually understand it and I understand it really well. And that was the goal. I, I wanted to try to take lots of, you know, I mean, Scotty's going to know this. The way scholars mm-hmm. talk about the Bible is quite different than the way, you know, what, what normal you know, church people yeah. talk about the Bible. Yeah. Well, but to try to take, you know, really dense peer-reviewed information and make it decipherable to the normal person uh, was, was really the goal. The, the dirty little secret of the book is there's nothing in the book that's unique to me. It, right. I mean, I give you the breadcrumb trails everywhere. It, it is all peer-reviewed material. Mm-hmm. I'm the synthesizer. I'm the translator. And, and, and the synthesis is really the important part. That's the part that has never been done before. Synthesize all this this kind of stuff, again, to, to just give you the broad overlay. And But I give you all the breadcrumb trails you could ever want, you know, to track down the information. But it's readable. So, you know, they were surprised, you know, that it, it sold so well. But there's – I look at it and go, look, every church has four or five people that know they are not being taught. The problem is finding them. It, it's it's luring them out of hiding, <laughs> uh-huh. luring them out of the out of the cave. You know that they they just know that there's got to be more to this than I'm being taught, or and they've given up. They're in oh, despair. Man. Yeah, and so it, it's like, look, I know you're there. I know you're out there. I just got to find you, and and this will just help you again rekindle that you know the, the thrill of discovery. You know, all over again, and that that's really what I'm trying to do uh, in the book. So. That's how people can get it, you know, those three ways. You mentioned November. November is the annual uh, academic meetings for um, everybody in biblical studies. Uh, it's always the week before Thanksgiving. This year it's in Atlanta, Evangelical Theological Society, Society of Biblical Literature, Institute for Biblical Research, bunch of archaeological societies. They all meet at the same time because they only have to make one trip, especially if you're you know, if you teach <laughs> overseas. Yeah. So that that's the big week, and, it, and you literally have over 1,000 sessions you can go to wow uh, during the course of the week it, it's just it's a madhouse but what some a people cool go for the books. what a cool event that sounds like man oh it, it, it's great i mean you you, you got to go i tell people look you know you it, it can be overwhelming but the the program books are out months in advance and it'll take you a few weeks you to really go through them <laughs> uh, and, and find what you want but if you only go for the book tables it's worth it you know, it'll cost you over a hundred bucks to get in, but but there are a couple hundred publishers there, and some of them. This is the only place and the only time of the year that they give a discount. It's all high end academic, you know, publishers. So the book tables are just like a a Lollapalooza for geeks. I mean, it just wow. it, it's awesome. So I, I just so if you're into biblical studies, you know, ancient studies, this is something you got to do at least once. Well, Dr. Heiser, thank you so much for coming on and we'll, we'll have to have you back on the show uh, for sure. I mean, there's so much to cover just in this one book alone. I think we could do like a 10 hour series of interviews, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, well, thanks for the, uh, the invitation. Absolutely. Glad, glad I did it. It's always fun. Thank you so much. Uh, stay. We're going to close out this segment. Just stay on the line for us. We'll be right back on Conspiranormal. 
All right, we're back on Conspiracy Normal. We got uh, Rob over here yeah, on, yeah. The, on the board. Kind of, you know, he kind of looks like Jesus. I, mean, I got Christ <laughs> as my producer. That's been my so. nickname in several different <laughs> avenues of my life. Scotty. Uh, yes, sir. Real quick, what did you think about that? Um, excellent conversation. Um, uh, I, I could have said, like I said, it, 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 it was tough for me to not want to continue to talk and ask him questions. Right. And, and converse with him about things. I, I, I'm sorry if I talked too much. Uh, there were totally times fine, I, oh, Scotty. Just, that was too much, and I, I got to shut up for a while and just let him <laughs> talk and, and get his responses. And yeah. so, uh, and you know what I like about his approach is one of – there's a big difference between being fundamentalist uh, and, and being – uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? A, a realist, a realist. A, 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 um, I don't know how else to put that because uh, I haven't really thought of the terms I wanted to use for that. But I love what he said about context. It's context. It's to whom it's being written. It's it's uh, um, what they would have understood at that time. I don't know if I if I originally got that from him, but I think I yeah. mentioned that in my book on the Nephilim. Uh, back in right. 2012, I, I actually said that. I said it's it, it all. It's linguistics. It's understanding what was said, the language used, to whom it was being presented, and what they would have understood in their language, in their context, in time. And uh, this is what makes this fascinating. And uh, he really made me want to go pick up his book. Yeah, you, you, you should. I think you would really enjoy it and really get something out of it. Uh, Rob, what would you kind of like impressions of that? Because you just kind of like, sit, you know, <laughs> sitting here just like letting it sink in. Um, I, you weren't reading any music catalogs or anything. Right. Else, so. <laughs> he's also my favorite guest. I, I do think he takes a very um, logical, practical approach to things that are really hard to approach logically. But he, he, he makes it more accessible. And um, he never says anything that I don't. Um, fully grasp and identify with it's right, and it's it's some pretty obscure material. You know, it's it's pretty deep, deep yeah. stuff. It, it, it's deeper than like what you would normally get in like you know, say Sunday school. And oh, I'm yeah. sure for you, Scotty, some of it's not because you you've been through seminary training. Well, it, it's uh, what it was for me is a lot of it was familiar, but man, he puts a a different. Um, See, I'm, 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 not, I'm struggling for the right word. He puts, he puts a, a, a logic to it. Uh, he puts a, uh, I was going to say spin, but it's not spin. Uh, um, a very different take um, on things that I learned, on things that we discussed, things that you learn in seminary that you try to disseminate to those. I was a youth pastor, and you try to disseminate those things to the youth um, and bring it down to their level. Um, but he's, he's got... Uh, I've always said, uh, knowing something about the language in which these things were written cracks open the door and sheds a lot of light on what you're reading. And um, uh, I I like what he said, even my own theories uh, on on the Nephilim. And he said, well, he says, I don't see anything in there where those two things are, those two thoughts are congruent or the... The Elohim and the, the, the Nephilim, or I'm sorry, or the, the Nakash in the garden and so on. Yeah. And it makes me stop and think, okay, because this is a man who has taken the time to really understand and know these things, whereas, whereas I have gleaned from his research and quoted him as opposed to being the actual linguist myself. So uh, it's very interesting to talk to him and listen to what he has to say. And 
I don't know what else I can say about that. Scotty, you need to get him on Intrepid Radio. <laughs> I do. Well, I good. really do. Let's see what John Ward thinks of him. Yes. <laughs> uh, 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 pardon me. I, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I don't mean to interrupt, but um, <laughs> how would you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> would, you, <laughs> would you square that to the 23rd dynasty of the... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how would you... <laughs> well, that's that's fine if you want to believe in this Jesus thing. <laughs> this, this, what is this man Jesus? <laughs> Look, I've been working on it. I've been working on the John Ward impression. <laughs> I really have to tell you, Rocky. I think you're wrong, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I think you're completely off base. That's a fine theory, but it's. It's it's flawed. I am going to tell you my favorite part of uh, Intrepid Radio was when uh, you mentioned our show and he was talking about conspiracy. He says conspiracy theorists sit in their mom's basement and they <laughs> play with their Kleenex. And you said, well, everybody except for you know Adam and any conspiracy yes. normal. And he says, no. Now, I know Atom has a subscription to Kleenex. <laughs> I know for a fact that he has a subscription to Kleenex, and I'll be sending him a personalized box from Egypt. I loved it. I loved it. We, we love yeah. Dr. Ward. He was a great, he was a great, uh, great guest on the show. Yes, he is. Uh, fun. couple of uh, show notes uh, for everybody before we go. Uh, was not a, we were not able to connect with Scott Bennett. So if you're listening to the show and you thought this would be the Scott Bennett show, it was not, obviously. Uh, but we're going to try to get him back on soon. Uh, not sure if it's going to be this Sunday, which we'll put that up as a separate show from our other guest that well, I know definitely on Sunday, which uh, I know you know this gentleman, Scotty, Peter Robbins. Yes. We're going to talk about the Reynoldsham Forest, Bent Waters event. Uh, some things in his personal life that that he's experienced, and, and that's going to be, I think, just as an incredible episode as this one. So uh, stay tuned. And Scotty, I'm not going to reveal yet, but uh, you have actually want to thank you for helping us get on an awesome guest that's coming up in October. We won't say who that is. Let's just right. say think uh, think History Channel. Uh, <laughs> yes. So yes, too bad you didn't get him. When I got them the, <laughs> the night after. <laughs> yeah. Scotty, thank you so much for being with oh, us guys, tonight. Thanks for having me. Thanks for allowing me to be a part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, anytime. And, uh, thank you guys for listening. And uh, sorry it's been such a long show, but uh, join us next time on Conspiranormal. Thank you.
going to kill a thousand men I've beaten with this jawbone over and over again Even if you beat fools half to death You still can't beat the foolishness out of them And they would have said to him Your blood be on your own head Your own mouth testified against you when you said He catches the helpless and drags them off in his head He even destroyed distant relatives yeah. and friends yourself no relief Your eyes no rest That you're guilty of a capital defense I will fill your mountains with the dead Like a maniac student flaming arrows of death Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble Lying there dead with a tent peg through his temple When they saw the man fled from him and were dreadfully afraid Before then the people ride in pain Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.